Hello and welcome to Got the Runs, the comics podcast with all the sexual comics. <laughs> just like a, I guess they're teenagers. Um, <laughs> <laughs> a lot of a lot of minds to walk around in this one. Uh, those two people who like they live in the house with, they seem nice. Yeah, they're fine. Gigi is one of them named. Uh, the other one, of course, I think if he were here, he would say, I am Chappy. <laughs> Excuse you? I said he would say, I am Chappy because I, his name is Chappy. His name is Chappy? <laughs> I think so. I read these I like 10 not. minutes ago, so <laughs> <laughs> I feel pretty good about the guess. Anyways, welcome everyone to the show. We are, of course, discussing the final episode of our cookie. Uh, oh, so you don't like it when someone else does it? No. Uh, our Darwin Cook miniseries, The Late, The Great. Yeah, this is a bummer. Um, I should have done. Should have put this one in between the two Parker volumes. They, uh, no, uh, hey. We'll just hold your horses right there. I don't think it's a bummer personally, but we uh, we'll discuss. Uh, yeah, this. we will discuss. I mean, in comparison. Mm. Wow. Okay. I guess <laughs> I guess we will discuss. It. <laughs> uh, and in this episode, we are covering, as the uh, episode title note says, uh, the two before Watchmen comics that Darwin Cook wrote, and the one that he also penciled, which is. There's a, it's like a Venn diagram. It's not three comics. Mm-hmm. Um, Before Watchmen, Minutemen, and Before Watchmen, Silk Spectre, Alan Silk Spectre. Is that something? Yeah. He did the Avengers theme? Yeah, I'm, I'm aware. <laughs> and, and the part I'm familiar, in Parent Trap. I'm familiar with his work. Remember the part in Parent Trap where it's like, I remember it because you are obsessed with it. It's one of the great pieces of score in a movie. Um, so, I mean, there really is a lot to dig into. With Boy, this there one. sure is. Um, before Watchmen. Yes. Sorry, I'm just trying to confirm that his name is in fact Chappie. <laughs> it doesn't seem to get said at any point in the fourth issue. Before Watchmen, of course, a... Hold on, I'm trying to find... Yes, it is Chappie. Chappie, Gigi, and Eagle. He's Chappie. He is He's human. He is human. <laughs> These are two Before- undeniable <laughs> facts. <laughs> oh, you know, he could be like a scroll About the minor character of Before Watchmen Silk Spectre, Chappie. <laughs> R.I.P. R.I.P. Right? Wait. No, he's, he lives. Does he? They live. Yeah, he does, right? He's fine. I will take your word for it. This is not the one that I think yeah, the more What? Dive, I will say. <laughs> Although I yeah, yeah, I mean we can we can get into them individually. I don't think either of them is devoid of merit. The I mean But, but Minutemen so is a lot better. <laughs> like a lot better. Sure. I I will say that this the Silk Spectre one is mainly like and I assume this is what it's like with a lot of the other ones, which I haven't read. Me neither. Like, these are this is pretty good. I wish this wasn't about Watchmen. Yeah, that is exactly what I thought. Even about Minutemen, which I think probably makes... Th- again, I, ha- I I haven't read any of them other than these two. I had not read these two before today. <laughs> and, and even then, I was like, 
these seem like they're probably better than most of the other ones. And even like thinking that Minutemen, my sense is it probably makes kind of the best use of the fact that it's a Watchmen book. I still am like, does this need to be a Watchmen book? Do any of these (laughs) need to be Watchmen books? My one other thing, and I guess like the thing with the Minutemen, it's like a lot of it is just like, a depiction of things that like we already know happened in Watchmen. Yes. Cause I mean, like, there's, the there's some like, like retconning happening for sure, but yeah, but yes. it's been a while since I've read Watchmen. So I don't have uh, the specifics, but you know, it's most of it is like, like all the stuff with the Minutemen is sort of alluded to. And mm-hmm. you know, like this, this sort of, I think it is much more obviously in line with like the themes of Watchmen mm-hmm. being about like, sort of like the seedy underbelly of superheroism and the way that like these people just inevitably come sort of morally compromised i guess by mm-hmm. like this impossible mission that they have to choose you know it's it's interesting because also it's sort of very antithetical to the new frontier idea i mean in in many ways i feel like minute is like the antithesis to new frontier because like we talked about new frontier is about like a group of people who know what what's right and what's wrong and will like fight to do the right thing mm-hmm. whereas minutemen is like it's impossible to know what's right and what's wrong and you know and this is what watchmen is too but like even if you do something that feels objectively right in the moment it will like come back to bite you because there's like mm-hmm. a whole other evil thing you didn't even know about <laughs> yes it is funny like i mean this is part of kind of like I just find it so weird that Darwin Cook is involved with this at all in some ways because like, I mean, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it, it, it all, his, all of his involvement is very like flabbergasting to me, as you can tell with my like sputtering, <laughs> trying to, trying to like process it because it's like, if I read new frontier, I would be like, well, obviously this guy's obsessed with Watchmen. <laughs> like it just feels like something that was like created by someone who like was really impacted by Watchmen. And I think he was impacted by Watchmen. But then when you read his interviews about this, of which there are so many, because every media outlet is like, so this is pretty controversial, huh? <laughs> <laughs> you mean, you mean like impact in the sense that like they're sort of writing like, like like I said like an antithesis to Watchmen in some ways. Well, both that's that, like about both that he's writing an antithesis to Watchmen and like it, Watchmen is so much a deconstruction of kind of like the Silver Age superhero, and I feel like in a lot of ways, the New Frontier is a deconstruction of like Silver Age America. Like it's the same kind of time period and it's less so that he's like the characters are what need to be kind of like revisited or re-examined and more so like the era is what i want to sure you know kind of play with and i think that a lot of like the the rigid sort of like formalism that he uses in that book is very inspired by watchmen as well but anyways in these interviews he will say like basically like yeah i think it's like an extremely impressive work but it's not something that I point to and I'm like, this is a perfect comic or, you know, this is this is like a, a untouchable, timeless masterpiece, which I guess is like kind of what you would if you thought that you probably wouldn't be like, and I'm prepared to, <laughs> to yeah. like, I'm the one who's going to follow it up. So, like, I find it confusing on that part. 
I'm also surprised that like not only does he seem not to have anticipated kind of the backlash from some segments of like comics fandom kind of in defense of Alan Moore, but it is obviously something that he doesn't feel like carries a lot of freight for him, which again, I find very unusual because the last two things we've talked about with him were things where it was like this property that I'm revisiting is someone else's IP that's so important to me that means so much to so many people and so I'm going to work so closely with the like original creators and make sure that like they're signing off on everything and I have their blessing and everything I do is like keeping in the spirit of you know what what they had wanted to do with these beloved characters that I love and these beloved properties that I love and then he comes onto this and is like, I don't really care at Alan Moore things. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to do me, <laughs> which it's, yeah. it, it all just seems very unusual where it's like, it's just such a weird, like kind of capstone to everything else we've talked about with him. And then like the inherent darkness of Watchmen, how dark these ones are, especially Minutemen, when he is the like, comics don't need to be dark and gritty guy and like heroes should be heroes guy it all just seems like he is like the last person who should have been involved. And again, like they're good, but like, just as I like think about it in the context of his overall career, I'm just like, how did this happen? <laughs> yeah. That's, it's really interesting because like, yeah, I mean like I feel like kind of to some extent the, the sort of the idea of like the reverence to Alan Moore is partially just like, well, I did this, and so, like, <laughs> I guess I can't be too... Because, like, I mean, on one hand, I'm like, well, it's work. Like, mm-hmm. if they were going to make it any... Like, they're going to make it anyways. They're going to make it with someone. It might as well be you, I guess, like, if you want to do it. But then it is, like... I, I do also kind of agree with Al more that it's like <laughs> this should not exist. Like, it is also very funny that he is like, I like it's not about money for me. I just want it to be destroyed. <laughs> yes, um, it is something that it seems very clear to me that this is something that as like once the movie came out, they were like, it's time we can like capitalize on Watchmen again somehow beyond just like continuing to have the trade paperback like continually be a bestseller every year because uh there was this like interview with alan moore in 2010 of course the movie comes out in 2009 moore said in 2010 that dc had approached him and said we will give you and dave gibbons the artist the rights back if you sign on to do some prequels and sequels with us like if you if you do some sequel and prequel projects we will give you back the rights how that's crazy. <laughs> that is crazy. And he was like, he he basically says in this interview, like 10 years ago, I would have found that very tempting. Um, but like, basically, since the movie came out, I consider like the, the prospect of like doing any business with DC of any kind to be like sure. a Mephistophelian, you know, uh, undertaking mm-hmm. that is like, I, I don't care if I don't see how I could possibly lose. I just assume that I will like somehow be screwed. So I'm not going to do it. And then these ultimately, like news kind of comes out that these are happening in 2012. So, you know, that that makes sense just in terms of the timeline of like, well, you know, we went to Alan Moore to see if we could get him to do it. He said, no, that doesn't mean we're not going to do it. And then, you know, within a year and a half, they've lined up um, the full creative teams for all these different miniseries and are 
prepared to like have books on the shelves by uh, spring of 2012. Darwin Cook, for his part, did also say that he was approached about it a few different times and said no, um, because he felt like he didn't have an idea, basically, until until he did. And then he said yes. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Now, Watchmen itself, it's crazy that, I mean, I know there was some episode where I ranted about uh, the like contract specifics for like half an hour, but... Um, it is. It does feel crazy that this is the first time we're really talking about it in in sort of the fuller context of something that uh, we're covering. But you was Watchmen wasn't your first like superhero comic, was it? Um, I mean, probably not my first like superhero comic, but certainly an early. I mean, like I feel like nearly everyone. It's like. It does seem to be something that gets hit very very early on, and always has been. Yeah, it's going to come onto your radar at some point. Cause, like, I think Alan Moore sort of describes it in that same interview when he's talking about like getting Watchmen back. And how, like he hates the idea of before Watchmen. That it's like it it was the only comic that made us briefly special. <laughs> yeah, it is like Alan Moore does. I think the big thing about it, like the real kind of claim to fame that sort of puts it in the like public consciousness i guess is the fact that it's the only comic on that like time 100 greatest novels list Mm. and so it gets like goat comic status and more by extension gets like goat writer status and so anyone especially in like kind of the the like ultimately like efficient uh like internet mode of consuming content where you're like yeah. what's the best stuff and what like what yeah. order do it you know best that comics. whole thing yeah exactly so you're gonna you're gonna quickly run into like listicles where it's like number one watchmen and like comic book writers number one alan moore and you know things like that it does seem like something that is positioned to be an, an early experience in the uh the modern i guess like comics content consumption model yeah, and the the thing that Moore says, and also I think the thing that is sort of hinted at by, you know, like you said, that time greatest novels is like, it is kind of something that is made special by virtue of it being like acknowledged by mm-hmm. non comics people, which is like kind of sad in a way. <laughs> but I mean, like, I think you know, again, I haven't read it in a few years, but like, I think Watchmen's great. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's it's great. I mean, like, you can't. It's it's you know it's one of those things where maybe this isn't the best comic of all time or my favorite comic of all time but like you know you can't really art it's pretty undeniable as like a work in the same way that Mm -hmm. i like i mean like i guess citizen kane would be a good example where it's like citizen kane is certainly not my favorite movie but Mm -hmm. like well the influence is undeniable that's not that good yeah Yeah, that too it's it's so much like if you to, to understand like any comic published since 1986 you have to like consider it in the context of Watchmen, at least in terms of like the American comic scene and especially the superhero comic scene. So you're pro Watchmen, that's <laughs> what I gather, um, which of course I am as well. I do think like just just like looking at what Moore kind of like says about Watchmen and how he talks about it. I will say like this is something that I over the years have like fluctuated on to like various degrees of a how much I care and b like who I even think is right. I will say that like more 
has become like so dismissive of comics as a medium in a way that I do think is like ultimately unfair to to the industry as a whole, even if it is very much understandable. And I do think that that sometimes comes through in the ways that he talks about Watchmen as like, you know, this, this towering achievement that, you know, was, was like the, the only time comics have ever been literature. <laughs> like, yeah. I think, I think that's, and I do think that like, you know, he's probably intending that to be understood in the broader context of like superhero comics, in which case, like, there's maybe more of an argument that you could make along those lines, but I, I do think he can be <laughs> even again, like I said, I don't think it's really fair. I do think his experiences have understandably kind of soured him on the whole thing. Sure. But what I definitely do agree with is that like, as he, as he talks about Watchmen and especially in the context of like the whole before Watchmen stuff is that just like inherently what he was trying to do with Watchmen was like, uh, reach a certain like threshold of aesthetic value and like literary value. Yeah. And what the goal of before Watchmen and other <laughs> Watchmen spinoff properties is either a, the, like the corporate objective, which is make as much money as we possibly can. But even for the artists, the goal is like honor the legacy of Watchmen yeah. and provide like a worthy story within its universe where it's just like inherently, like you can never, you can never have something that is going to be like a Watchmen level book when the goal is like honor the legacy of Watchmen because yeah. Watchmen was not trying to do something that was like stood in reverence of another work, which is like why it is so impactful and influential. Yeah, exactly. Like you can't you can't pay respect to Watchmen because Watchmen didn't pay respect to anything else really. I mean, and I did just say that I kind of agree with him that these shouldn't exist, but I don't. I actually don't because <laughs> like I feel I'm very much a person where it's like you know the whole like ruin my childhood phrase has really like destroyed ruined your everything. childhood <laughs> it's ruined my adulthood certainly <laughs> um just like the idea that like making a sequel or a prequel even if they suck or even if they are like blatant cash grabs which I don't really think these are well I mean, like <laughs> I think that they made them knowing that they would make money from them, but I also think, like, that they... It's not like they were just, like, just get these out the door as quick as we can. Like, they did, like... They got legitimate creators, certainly. Like, I mean, they well, got yeah. Cook. They they definitely... I mean, the, the list of creators is fascinating because, like, they are all star creators at the very least. <laughs> But I also feel like there are some pretty conspicuous absences and like, yeah, do you refer? Well, I mean, like Grant Morrison is the big one, but they have such a weird kind of like relationship to Alan Moore, especially just kind of like over time that. Uh, yeah, I don't, it, it, that's that's always like a very weird thing. I do feel like Jeff Johns, I, I mean, he did his own thing later with Doomsday Clock, but that is kind of like a weird omission as well to me because it does feel like what they, they like they tried to bring on some like names like some capital n names to be like watchman is coming back and we're putting it in like the most like kind of trusted hands that yeah. we have uh so like rest assured that these will be like good stories that like i said honor the legacy and will like contribute to like be be both good and like respectful i guess basically right yeah and i mean like I will say we we sort of talked about this before, but 
I did read one issue of uh, Before Watchmen Comedian. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, That's an Azarello joint, is it? It's an Azarello joint. What what do you what do you think that book might be about? Um, I know that it <laughs> is about his like time in Vietnam, and oh. I, I know there's like some Kennedy stuff involved as well. It is like I would either I would say it's about his time with the Kennedys, and there's some <laughs> Vietnam stuff involved. It, it is opens. either implicit or explicit, possibly in Watchmen, that he killed JFK. Like, I believe he is shown at one point, like, on the grassy oh, yeah, knoll with a that. sniper rifle. <laughs> I, I believe that is retconned. Well, okay. I, I'll tell you the two things that really stick out to me about uh-huh. before Watchmen Comedian, which I read, like, I think two issues of. Um, didn't look at any of the other ones. I was just morbidly curious what the comedian one would be. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it opens with him playing touch football with the Kennedys. Okay, of course. And then Jackie asks him to kill Marilyn Monroe, which he does. And he kind of okay. like sniffs her butt bef- after, before or after he kills her. This like, does sound like, like a Brian Azzarello comic, to be sure. <laughs> he puts her. He puts his face near her her haunch. I'll say. Uh, and then later, it's like he goes to bust up I, a Moloch. Is that his name? Yep. He's like one of the few sort of villains that are named, and. Like, he goes to bust up Moloch, and then it's like, he comes up behind Moloch and is like, put your hands up, Moloch. And Moloch is like, it's like, turns back to him in tears. It's like, they shot the president. (laughs) (laughs) And then then it's like, oh boy. And then there's a part where it's like, the comedian like gets the bottle of whiskey out of Moloch's drawer and like and they like sit together and like have a drink. Oh man. That is, I mean, hand on Moloch's shoulder. That is crazy. That is that is absolutely demented. <laughs> oh, I can't. I can't engage too heavily with that. Okay. Here are the creative teams for the Before Watchmen books. Minutemen, writer-artist Darwin Cook. This is like a clear headliner, clear like... And makes perfect sense. It does make perfect sense. Other than like, you know, has maybe like thematic, mm-hmm. seemingly clash with the material. But yeah, like... But like yeah like let's bring back our retro guy who does like the covers for all of our like silver age omnibus books and like all of our silver age throwback books and he's going to do another like post-war story but instead of the justice league this time it's the minutemen yeah it does it does from that kind of standpoint make perfect sense um and i would also say just like in terms of where there's meat still on the bone, the Minutemen is the one where it's like, yes, there, there's a lot of space to stretch out and do something, even to the point that like Moore himself talked about at one point, the possibility of a Minutemen prequel series. Yeah. Fascinatingly, specifically cites the cool dramatic tension of already knowing how it ends, which I feel like today everyone is like, well, prequels are boring because you already know how it ends. Right. He he felt that that was uh, bespoke the high potential for the, uh, the did series. You, did you see the other like things that had apparently yes, been floated around? Yes, I did. Um, <laughs> those I will say. So the other ideas that I have seen mentioned at least are uh, like punisher war journal except comedian war journal uh which would be like his vietnam days and a like rorschach night owl like brave and the bold style book but no because 
well, I, I don't think, because at least in the in the thing that's referenced here, which is this like British TV series, I think the idea is it's Night Owl and Rorschach's ghost. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> because okay, I've not heard about that. I'm, I'm looking at Wikipedia here and it says a, a Night Owl Rorschach team book in the manner of this British series called Randall and Hopkirk Deceased, which is like a cop <laughs> okay. show, a buddy cop show where one of the cops is dead. <sighs> that is uh, messed. Now, my understanding is that those were like DC was like, what about this idea? What about this right. idea? And they were like, thank you. No. Right. And also, no one else can write a Watchmen book. Yeah, which, I, like, I don't think they really had the power to claim, but also, like, there was, I don't know, it's it's always very weird where, like, this was maybe more so a thing in the 90s, but DC both has this, like, terrible reputation for, like, completely screwing creators in <laughs> their, like, contracts, at least as far as, like, you know, situations that, that aren't like pretty standard, uh, work for higher contracts, which most comic contracts are. Um, but like the, the Watchmen contract would have been an exceptional contract. And like the Superman contract, of course, is another one that frequently is brought up, but anyways. And also, uh, the Judas contract. Yes, of course. The Judas contract is another famous DC contract. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but at the same time, they have all these like either handshake or like actually formal agreements with creators like Neil Gaiman or Gaiman and, um, and James Robinson for, for like the, uh, the endless characters from Sandman and for Jack Knight Starman, where it's like, well, you don't own them, but like, we won't use them if you don't say it's cool. Uh, or like you aren't the one writing it and Watchmen for a long time, just like was also kind of under that umbrella where it was like, we're not going to bring them into the main universe. We're not going to do more stuff with them without the original creator's involvement, even though we still own them, we're going to kind of like set them aside. And it's also like, like I get like, I guess the comedian in Vietnam is like a pretty clean one, but it's like, there's not, and the Minutemen, but there's not that much ground to tread. And it's like, no, and certainly like no one wants to see a sequel to Watchmen. I don't think. Well, HBO I'm, would beg to differ, apparently. Sure, that's like <laughs> as with drastically different. We can I think Doomsday Clock. If if HBO's Watchmen came out as a comic, people would be like, what is this? I mean, people were already like, what is this? That's true. That is all true. Um, but anyway, so Darwin Cook on Watchmen, the clear kind of like, that's that's the buzzy one. Uh, yeah. And then before Watchmen, Silk Spectre, Darwin Cook and Amanda Connor. Um, Amanda Connor, I think, probably has a little bit more name recognition and and clout these days after having been involved in some like pretty popular Harley Quinn comics. But even at the time, would have been recognizable. She did like a long run on Power Girl that w- I think would probably be the thing that she would kind of be most recognized for. Uh, and then we have the comedian book with Brian Azzarello and J.G. Jones. So you know the hundred bullets guy and. Um, I guess J.G. Jones had done a few different things at that point. I usually think of him for some reason as the 52 covers guy. <laughs> yeah, I do. Um, but, but he had done plenty of interiors on stuff like Seven Soldiers of Victory with Grant Morrison, things like that. And then Brian Azzarello and Lee Bermejo, the team behind Man of Steel and or Lex Luthor, Man of Steel and Joker, two 
very popular, highly disparate in quality <laughs> books, but but sure. like a well-known team who had produced some very popular stuff. Sure. Take on Rorschach. So I would say that one is also a pretty buzzy one where it is like kind of, if there's sort of like a breakout character from Watchmen, I guess Rorschach would kind of be the guy you would point to. Certainly, yeah. And then having this kind of like gritty crime-oriented, like ultra-violent writer in Azarello partnering with a well-known collaborator that there's some buzz for that one as well. Uh, and then on Night Owl, it's uh, J. Michael Strasinski with the Kubert brothers, uh, Andy and Joe. You know, yeah, J. Michael Strasinski, right? Okay, yeah. Yes, You've already done that bit about the Kuberts <laughs> in this miniseries. <laughs> I believe I did it last week. Um, yeah, I mean, I know that like he wrote Spider-Man... And he he's did. done a bunch of stuff. Like he's, he's, I, I he's like expected you guys. to know him as like the Babylon Five guy, which is kind yeah. of where he, he has a bigger, like it's it is weird because I hey. do think of him as primarily a comics guy, but I think most people at large would know him from Babylon Five. I guess you know what the problem is. Uh, Babylon Five guy would be hard to order a freaking burger mm-hmm, there because mm-hmm. everyone speaks different languages. <laughs> I do think that he is kind of a weird get um, because <laughs> totally saying that he he's coming off runs on Superman and Wonder Woman that are so like swept into the dustbin as soon as he ends them prematurely because sure. no one liked them. This is of course but the he famous. Is like, he's he, like yeah. a guy in the same way that like Jeff Johns is a guy. Yeah, Brian he, Michael Bendis is a guy. He definitely is like I wouldn't put him on the same level as those guys in terms of like name recognition or bankability, but he is like like I said, he is a star creator at the very least. But he yeah, he famously had a run of Superman where the idea is like he walks across America <laughs> and people don't like it. And he put Wonder Woman <laughs> in pants, if you can believe that. No. <laughs> Anyways, he's he's a funny pick because he is like not exactly on a hot streak right at this very present moment that it comes out. He is also on Doctor Manhattan with Adam Hughes, who like I would say Hughes is probably more so the star power on that book, and also does a uh, uh, two issues of Moloch with Eduardo Risso, the primary artist on Hundred Bullets, and then Len Wein, who was the original editor on Watchmen, uh, does Ozymandias with Jay Lee. And the dollar bill special with Steve Rude. <laughs> dollar, uh, dollar bill. Dollar dollar bill. Yo. So yeah, like I said, these are all like for a comics fan or reader in 2012. There's no one on this list who you're like, who's that? <laughs> they're all yeah. They're all well known. They're all recognizable. They all have like solid to legendary bodies of work in superheroes. So. Yeah, I agree. Like, it's not strictly like, how can we just like churn these out and fast as fast as possible and get as many issues on the shelves as we can. But I do think that it is part of like the kind of marketing strategy to give it this sort of prestige. Yes, I think that that's what I was going to say. The like part of the mark, like part of the PR, part of the way to handle people being upset about you making more Watchmen comics is like, see, we're handing it to people you can trust. Yep. Um, but I do, yeah, I, I, I feel like the thing, I guess what I kind of like walked away from these books with the sort of overall feeling was like, I think the reason that like these, I mean, these definitely did make money 
and so did Doomsday Clock, and so did the Watchmen TV show. But of cool. those, like before Watchmen is already kind of forgotten, other than as like a novelty, right. Doomsday Clock is like well down that path as well. I think like the Watchmen but, TV show is the only thing that will really have much staying power. And even that, I think people will be mostly kind of like, oh yeah, that was good. Yeah, it, it is like a little bit forgotten, but because it is a limited series, like people still do like have a lot of respect for that show. And like, you know, I think it's just mm-hmm. maybe more a function of existing in an age when there's a lot of good TV. Mm-hmm. But t- did you read Doomsday Clock? I have read snippets of it. It's again, like I did. I haven't read any of these books. This is kind of like what I'm driving at. I haven't read any of like the Watchmen sequel or spinoff stuff up until now, not because I'm like boycotting it or have like a moral like opposition to it in the same way that I'm like, I don't really blame any of these creators per se for like taking jobs. Like that is kind of the middle ground I find myself in where I'm like DC probably shouldn't have done it, but like, I'm not mad that these creators participated exactly. But just because I like wasn't interested in them really like at all almost. And I feel like the miscalculation on DC's part is that like for as much as people love Watchmen, it's not because like the story of Watchmen is so near and dear to them, or even that it's like, Oh, these like classic characters who we all know and love. Like yeah, Watchmen's achievements are achievements like in the context of like superhero comics in that era and achievements of like world building and achievements of like artistic merit. And so when they come back to it and they're like, here we go, like we're bringing back the characters and the story and like everyone's going to do the nine panel grid. It's like, yeah, but like the only one of those things that like really makes Watchmen special is the nine panel grid. And now it's like completely played. And like, we don't care if someone in like the 2010s is doing a nine panel grid, like, whoa, cool. (laughs) 30 year old storytelling technique. And, And I think that is why like they, you know, they, I think they will keep taking kicks at the can and I think they will keep making money because people like see what the Watchmen name and are like, cool, I'm interested. And then I think they'll read it and be like, nothing about what makes Watchmen important or special is in this. And then they'll forget about it. And I think it's not even that, but also like, like you said, like, I don't think people have any affection for the characters outside of like the world and like the situations that the original comic places them in like Mm -hmm. no one is like i love dr manhattan like Mm -hmm. i wish i could see more of dr manhattan's great adventures like (laughs) and also like a big part of Watchmen is also just like all of these people are like 90 percent of them are like inherently contemptible yeah well and and, are not heroes yes and even more so like they're all pastiches as well. Like they're all based on or inspired by other characters or are intended to like evoke other characters. So it's like, even, even if you were like the world's biggest Rorschach fan, it's like, well, the things that like are appealing to you in that are meant to be like reminding you of the question (laughs) or like, if you're like, Oh, Dr. Manhattan, cool. It's like, yeah, those ideas were cool when they were like the basis for captain Adam, like at the, the, the whole like thing of it is that these these characters are at some level like yeah like i said pastiches or or meant to like the the whole the whole superhero deconstruction and commentary is predicated on them being recognizable as types rather than being right. so unique and distinct as characters 
Right. <laughs> For some reason, this just came to mind. Like, it would be like if they made a Meet the Spartans sequel now. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, I like, think of another I don't care about King Leonidas outside of his <laughs> original context. <laughs> but like, you know, like it's it is in some like I mean, Watchmen is a satire in some respects. Yeah, and certainly. So, like, it, it's weird to be like. Here are the characters from the satire, like mm-hmm. who are obvious like analogs for real characters that already right. existed. Yeah. Um, I mean, do we want to jump into the the real deal Holyfield here? Oh, do let's. Do you want to? Where do where do we want to start? Minutemen or uh, or Silk Spectre? Let's do Silk Spectre first because I feel like we will have less to say about that one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's Silk Spectre. It's freaking uh, what's her name? Laurel, Lori, Lori. She uh, she goes by the like original Polish name that I cannot remember, but it doesn't matter because it does not appear anywhere in this book. She's just called Lori Jupiter, right? Yes, it is her. It is the sixties. Yeah, there is it ever. Is it is it ever? I will say I think the art in this book is really good. I think the fact that. They are doing the nine panel grid mostly is whatever. I kind of was like when I read the I read Minutemen first. And when I read the first issue of that where he does the nine panel grid almost not at all, I was kind of like, I think it was a good call not to do the nine panel grid. And then he ends up doing it quite a bit. And this whole thing is nine panel grid. And for the most part, I'm kind of whatever about it, other than the fact that when she's high on the like what does he call it kt5 something like that (laughs) when she's high on kt5 i I think i think kesey is a real person and i'll let you google that while i while i talk about this but i did think the one kind of cool use of it was the fact that when she was high they stopped using it and did like a bunch of crazy layouts and that as like once she came down they reverted back to the nine panel grid so I thought that was cool. And I also thought her like fantasy kind of sequences that she has where she like envisions herself as art or imagines herself like in these sort of like romantic or adventure situations or things like that occupy the same space as panels would, but without any borders as though they're kind of like background in a way that I, I thought was like unique and different and like visually interesting. But other than that, like it's like I said, it's a nine panel grid. Yeah, I mean, like, what is there to say about this comic culturally? <laughs> um, like, it's it's the '60s. They're in San Francisco. I, it, I feel like the most notable stuff is just that it's like you know, like mommy dearest or whatever, mm-hmm. where it's like her relationship with her mother, who is like an insane woman. And then, so I I kind of like twenty percent forgot that. She is, like, a pretty significant character in Watchmen. Like, she does, like, pop up, right? Lori or Very, Sally? Lor- Sally. Yeah, Sally's Sally's around a lot. Especially More so like, than the other Minutemen, because they're all dead, mostly. Yeah, pretty much. I would say, yeah, yeah, I guess so. Because, like, Comedian is dead at the start. Like, Hollis is around, but he's, like, very much, like, a tertiary character. Yeah. Yeah, I would say of the original Minutemen, she is probably in it the most because she's the one who is like still alive and has a personal connection to one of them. Yeah, and I guess like it's really just like kind of setting the table with that. But it's like yeah. she is like really evil. In this. Yeah, she's uh, she's bad. I mean, she's not great in <laughs> Watchmen either, but right. no one is really. Yeah. Now, the scene I really want to talk about is in issue two when. 
uh, this guy, what's his name? The, the, he's like, I guess he's supposed to be kind of like a uh, Sinatra Chappie? type. No, the, the, like, the chairman. <laughs> that's right. The chairman goes to Sandoz to oh. lecture all of these musicians. <laughs> and we open it up with the Beatles. The Beatles? <laughs> and like cameos yes. by like Jim Morrison and like the Rolling Stones. This is like, crazy right <laughs> the this beatles stop completely... fighting here in india <laughs> that's the vibe from walk hard uh, yeah walk hard? i have seen walk hard not in many years but uh, but i have seen it just like There's... the beatles appearing but written with like cockney accents <laughs> yeah like really wrong we've like, been faffing about for what my bollocks are getting numb like a classic i guess that's supposed to be john yeah classic john line that's john <laughs> paul is really funny um, <laughs> paul, yeah, paul I mean, is really funny i can only agree i couldn't really make heads or tails out of like the crime parts of this like i wasn't totally sure who was who or what they were doing or what the goal was like i guess like i know it's like they're selling consumerist acid <laughs> <laughs> yes also, they like, are <laughs> corrupting the spirit of the summer of love to turn it into capitalism yes but then but also like it's like to save their dwindling record sales but then when people take the acid it's just they like don't buy I, need to, I need to buy the first thing in sight like i just have an <laughs> overwhelming need to purchase things yeah i i mean it feels to me like pretty thematically jumbled outside of kind of like the core you know the the core like parental influence i feel like especially compared to like this this is the one that of the two of them is kind of under the like solo colon a star wars story effect where it's like you you can see how little meat is on the bones because it's like ah yes the origin story of her boots like yeah ever wondered how she got that skull on her choker yeah. ever wonder why she wears a choker it's because her mom was like a choker <laughs> so now <laughs> she's gonna wear one and it's got a skull in it like that that stuff to me just like as, yeah as, as I'm reading it it's all just like kind of like whatever stuff and then every so often it's like. And of course, this is how the comedian got his smiley face pinned. He stole it oh, off her dresser. Like so mad. <laughs> the, like you said, the the ever wonder to which the answer is no is like <laughs> the most evil thing you can do in a prequel. I do just like I yeah, like I said, I, I think there's a lot to commend Minutemen. This one is, as I said, not without merits. I do think there's some interesting stuff, but by and large, it's kind of like a 6.5 out of 10 comic and like completely vindicates more when he says like, we made Watchmen and it was something special and now they want to turn it into like just another comic. And this is like, so just another comic, but then like there's some Watchmen in it that <laughs> it's yeah, just I like, mean, I can't, I can't deny him. Like he's just so right. <laughs> Yeah, this, I mean, this one especially, like, he really looks right here. And I assume it's the same with, like, most of the other ones. And, like, it's really, I guess if you're, is is the idea that it's sort of, like, it's picking up the themes or, like, 
the themes of the 60s so it can sort of lead into and the 70s so it can sort of like lead into the 80s well and it's like sort of like it's setting the thematic groundwork of i Watchmen guess in a way. so like a little bit like there is like kind of that nixon reference and like i i guess there is kind of like something to say in terms of like oh look it's like these like young counterculture teens in the 60s but by the time the 80s roll around they're going to be like the reagan era like you know yuppies but also like one of the big things in watchmen is that reagan isn't the president it's robert redford (laughs) and people are like redford's running for president the actor um or i guess no it's like nixon it's still it's still nixon and in like the last issue it's like redford's gonna run for president (laughs) also like it should be said if I wanted someone to write about hippies, I don't know that I would turn to Darwin Cook necessarily. I do. I think one of the reasons this feels half baked is that he, he wrote didn't it really. <laughs> <laughs> he was on that KT five. Um, he, no, it was. Oh, oh, Ken Kesey wrote "One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest." That's what the I guess connection is. But it's sure. key, it's Keezy test. Uh, I I don't know. Anyways, um, they asked him. They so they got him on board for Minutemen. He's like, yes, I've got an idea that I'm excited about. I'll do it. And they were like, great. How about Silk Spectre? And he was like, if you let me write Silk Spectre as well. <laughs> yeah. um, they were like, how about Silk Spectre? And he was like, no. And they were like, <laughs> are you sure? We're like kind of hurting. We can we kind of need someone to write Silk Spectre. And he's like no I'm good and they kept like kind of asking him and he's like well what basically he would like suggested like what if you did something with her in like the 60s uh you know as like kind of a young woman um who's like kind of just learning to come into her own and they're like sounds great will you write it he's like (laughs) no (laughs) I'm just like kind of trying to like throw you a line here of like maybe someone would be interested in doing this and they just like kept asking him to do it and then he was like well I guess if I could work with Amanda Connor I would do it and they were like great we'll we'll get you Amanda Connor will you write it he's like yeah okay I guess I guess so and I just feel like you can it's not that you can feel his reluctance, but it is, like, you can tell that, like... You can feel his, like, not caring, maybe. Yeah, and, like, that that it's, like, an idea he came up with after, like, kind of sitting there and being like, well, if I had to write it, what would I write? <laughs> or, like, what could you do? And then, what and then, you do? like, yeah, it, it he's he does feel a lot less invested in this as compared to Minutemen, even though I do think that working with Amanda Connor was something that he was really excited about. She is also credited uh, as one of the scripters as well. And I know that he specifically was like wanted her to have a lot of input on the script because he was like, I'm writing like primarily a female character and primarily about like a woman's relationship with her mother. I want a woman to like have a voice in this so that it's not just like me, a guy writing (laughs) this like mother daughter story. But I do think that she like, not, not to say that she like has no involvement in the plotting whatsoever, but I do think that dialogue is primarily um, like where she's contributing and character dynamics. Whereas the plot does ultimately spring from this original idea that he had. And I do think that because that original idea was like concocted under duress, that is part of why the book is just like, not that remarkable. Sure. And it's like, I just feel like there's a lot of like 
like you said, a lot of it feels half-baked. It's like, why is the chairman a thing? Like, why are these... Like, I guess, like, you know, it's sort of of the era to have these, like, foxy ladies. Mm-hmm. I do as, think like, there's... a heavies. Yeah, I do think it's meant to be a little bit more, like, funny. Yeah, I guess it's, like, meant to be more of a pastiche of the era and, like, media of the era than we really see of it. Mm-hmm. I mean, even just, like, the fact that, like the death of is it the chairman who who gets hit by the bus whoever gets hit by the bus like that scene that's is like, crazy. it's like, mean like slapstick comedy it's like pulped it's yeah crazy. it's uh that is that is demented yeah it is she kicks him in the throat with her boots that we know where she got those now and then she's about him. to gun him down comedian style i'm pretty sure that is like an homage to a specific yeah. panel from from Watchmen, but instead, yeah, he gets absolutely splattered by a bus, um, and then the, and then the also, headlight has the smiley face, blood splattered pattern on it. Classic. And also, I like um, the the guy immediately after it happens, where he's just going, "Holy shit! Holy shit! Holy shit! Holy shit!" It's like yeah. it's like breaking out of the bounds of the text yeah, bubble. Yeah, that's really funny. Primo as well. lettering. Like, yeah, if like if you. Maybe it's like more of almost like a WandaVision thing would maybe make it a little better where it's like if he was like episode like issue one, that's like happy days. And mm-hmm. then uh, happy days doesn't really fit with the timeline, but you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, and then like issue like two if he was kind this. of pastiching something from 60s culture in like each issue. Yeah, because as it is, it's like it kind of occupies this weird middle ground where it's like is this trying to be like a Watchmen thing where it's like dark and gritty or is it trying to be like more of a funny lighthearted look at like the sixties era with a little bit of like seriousness thrown in maybe. Mm -hmm. And I do also feel like there's just like a lot left on the table from like kind of a characterization perspective where like we have these scenes of her, like, like her, her, her interiority being expressed through, like her relationship with record, like really recognizable art pieces or through her like imagination of herself in these different scenarios. And we get like one throwaway line where Sally says like, basically like you read too many of those romance comics that, that kind of like indicates that, but it's just like, I feel like we're missing something there in terms of like understanding her beyond the, like my mother is overbearing kind of side of things of like, yeah, there's like this suggestion of like, oh, like art and and media play a really important part in her like uh, ability to kind of like process her feelings and the things around her. And I do think that that's also like a really fun way for like Connor to get to do really interesting layouts, do yeah. um, like work in different styles and like have fun with that and like really make the art kind of like sing. And it and it does and it's cool but then it's just like i don't know there's just something missing from it with that yeah and i do think it's a bit of like i i do think it lacks some interior or like lacks sort of like developing that character because like i guess ultimately what it's kind of about is like this person like in the same way it's like about a young woman and a young superhero who mm-hmm. like goes out to see the world and then like sort of realizes that the world is like a little more serious than she sort of thought it to be. Mm-hmm. I guess is the idea, right? I so yeah, like, I guess. Do we 
maybe you need to hit that a little hard. Like, and I guess like him getting pulped is like what that is. But then it's like that is sort of played comedically. <laughs> it is very comedic. I, I do think that like more so the moment where she realizes like she is going to shoot him is kind of like yeah. that's her like moment of self-actualization, I guess. Yeah, but that just has like no weight. Like I was just like I was cruising at that point. I was like, mm-hmm. let's get to the end here. Not and again, like I didn't dislike it, but and it's also like that's that's the whole like prequel of it all. Like we already know that she like has this kind of like violent side to her and that it's part of the like legacy of her her parentage via the comedian. <laughs> that and that like the last couple pages where she goes to the crime buster meeting are like unbearable. It's really crazy. Like just just yeah, the the worst kind of like prequely stuff. But so even to like have it be like, oh, her big moment is where she like kind of realizes her capacity for violence and and like I guess kind of like understands her own agency in that moment where it's like if I choose to kill this guy he can like he can be dead and it can be because I chose to like kind of step in but even then like at the lesson that she kind of walks away with is like oh my mother like equipped me to or has has like equipped me to be able to like do some good in this world, so it doesn't even like really match up. I don't know. Maybe I'm making more of that like moment with the gun than is uh, is intended. No, I think I think you're right. I think it's trying to be that, but it doesn't like carry that weight necessarily. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I do think that we're missing just like yeah more more to her than like I have a bad relationship with my mother in terms of like why is art so important to her or why like why is entertainment or escapism i guess we know why escapism is so important to her but and it's not even like like i'm definitely not asking for a scene where she's like sitting with Gigi or Ch- Chappie or whoever and being like <laughs> I, when my mom would like be out all night with guys all i had was my romance comics to read and so i thought about the world like a comic book like right. i don't necessarily want that but I just want something to be like, why, like, what is it that has made these like so important to her? Like, how did, how did she discover that connection or how did she like build this like coping mechanism? And then, and then, yeah, it's, it just feels like a lot of legwork to get us to a place where it's like, here are some things you already know about this character. And so here's some answers to some questions nobody was asking. Right. Yeah. And I think like that, like, to this, when I read this, I was like, this is kind of like what I expected before Watchmen to be, where it's just like a kind of superfluous story that like doesn't need, that is only feels like Watchmen when it is like so deliberately playing the Watchmen card. And just like, yeah, I, I mean, I'm like, I guess I would like this okay. I, I like it okay. It's what I'll say. Like, I also like it okay. And not to like, if you recontextualizing it so it's not a Watchmen story doesn't make it suddenly like a great comic. No. But it's at least like, I don't know, it it gives it more room so that you don't have to have her like a page of her being like, this owl guy, who could ever date him? And, and have that much more time to spend on something else. And it just takes away all the like weird, like this is a Watchmen book <laughs> stuff. Right. I was just wondering why... Captain Metropolis asked the comedian to be part of the crime <laughs> which is probably explained in a comic. I mean, I don't think it is necessarily explained in Watchmen other than just like 
I mean, like at that point, he sort of like legitimized himself by becoming like the government guy. Right. And and he's also like kind of the last of the Minutemen who's like really able to participate in any kind of meaningful way. So he's just sort of like, well, I guess <laughs> you can also come. Right. It's a little it's interesting. Should we do we have anything else to uh, add in here before we the doctor is Darwin Cook. Which doctor? At the hospital. Oh, at the hospital. Yeah. Sure. Great. Cool. Yep. Looks like him. Is that his a... white coat says Cook. I believe that is number two. I think I thought it was okay, but if you think it's number two, then <laughs> <laughs> mm. I don't like Also, that. I'm wrong. It's number three. Great. Well, kudos to him. You yeah. live on forever. <laughs> In the pages of Before Watchmen, Silk Spectre, number three. Uh huh. Yeah, I think the nurse is also his wife, but I'm not 100% sure on that. Marcia. And the doctor is a woman. Yeah, and that's why he can't treat Chappie, because <laughs> <laughs> Chappie is human, and he can only treat I don't, this robots. Is, <laughs> we simply must fail here. <laughs> yeah, so let that, uh, let that confused, jumbled mediocre joke uh close the book on a confused jumbled mediocre uh series yeah it's like it's like a caricature of him and his white coat says cook now minutemen yeah a lot a lot a lot better (laughs) this is really good in my opinion it is quite good i can i mean the, the only real complaints i have about it are basically like that it that it is a watchman book oriented where it's just like it's really good does it really make sense to do like a deconstruction of superheroes using characters who were created to deconstruct superheroes well i mean i think what it is is it's kind of it's you know it's like i said it's telling a story that we kind of already knew in like fragments mm-hmm. you know it does i will say like it gives a lot more depth to some of the characters, especially sure. Hollis. Uh, I would say the silhouette is another yes. major beneficiary and Mothman as well. Those are kind of the main three that I feel yeah, like definitely. really get um, get some meat on their bones, uh, you know, kind of all things considered. Now, yes, and I think like one of the successes of this book is like it turns Hollis from just like a pretty generic good guy. Mm hmm. To being more of like a fleshed out character yeah and and without becoming like he's not like ruined or like you know made made into a bad guy but he is i guess like he becomes a bit more nuanced and a bit less sort of like saintly than he is presented in the original he becomes more book. tragic i think because it's like because like yeah. i was talking about like it's sort of about it's about a guy who never had anything but the best intentions mm-hmm. but sort of like made compromises or was like unable to prevent create. compromises yeah or like he was unable to do the things that needed to happen to like prevent tragedy mm-hmm. yeah it's it's basically just about like how hard it is to be a good person in the real world yeah which is again like that's sort of what new frontier is about as well yeah um but obviously, like, and I thought I thought it was interesting, sort of what you were saying about it not really fitting Cook's tone, because the ending 
is kind of very Darwin Cook in spite of having so much of like <laughs> oh the, oh yeah that that he's kind of like just like well guess time to get back to my cards yeah and just like I guess like it's it's never too late to like do a good thing yeah um which is kind of funny especially in the wake of like that's reveal which I didn't fully understand we can talk about that in a second about um about hooded justice yes yes um so now see this is one thing i meant to like go back and check out because i can't now remember if hooded justice being black a thing i mentioned in the new frontier episode because john henry's costume is so hooded justice i guess adjacent yeah i I can't remember if he is supposed to be black in watchmen or if that's like an hbo show edition no, I think that the Rolf Muller character exists in original Watchmen as well. Right, and is suggested as, like... Because I guess his real identity is never, like, confirmed in Watchmen either. No, it's... I think it's... You know how Watchmen has those, little, like, interstitial... Yeah. Ri- it's like, I think there are, like, excerpts from Under the Hood in Watchmen. And it, that, that it, it suggests about- that Rolf Mueller or Muller or whoever... Yeah. could be yes. that makes sense it does uh, it is justice... a great costume for uh, uh like it just it, it makes sense to me that um in the like creation of the hbo show they were like what if this guy was black yeah and yeah especially since so much of the show like focuses on that not that i've seen it but my understanding is like race plays a pretty major yeah. role certainly more than it does in uh in watchmen yes um and of course, we must we must stand a fellow HJ. We must, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Artistically, this book good, uh, of course. Sure. I mean, like it is very much like everyone looks like the a Darwin like, Cook character. Versions. Yeah, like they look like the. It's it's fun because it's sort of like gives them the air of superheriority <laughs> superhero-tude uh-huh. uh, well you know obviously like that their appearance belies their true nature and so i think that that's a sort of fun contrast mm-hmm. whereas i feel like watchmen is almost like this is how someone you know i think it's what it's trying to do is like this is how someone who was dressed like a superhero would look as an actual person. Yes, very much so. Especially because so many of them are like kind of pudgy or like a lot of them appear in their kind of like past their prime states. Yeah. And then yes. this is sort of like, it's almost like we're seeing it through the rose colored glasses, mm-hmm. which I think is cool. There is a recurring motif, visual motif in this that I was trying to kind of figure out what I thought the meaning was, which is, so at the very start of issue one, I think it's a very a very cool conceit in issue one. But there's like this this recurring use of circles or round objects, and it starts out with um, the narration: you come into this world, and your point of view is narrow. And that panel has like the crib as kind of the frame, and creates this suggestion of like this round shape. And then as he goes on to talk about how as you age, like your your point of view expands, the suggestion of the circle itself actually like narrows panel by panel until it's like a very small clock in the the end of the second page 
which I think is like a just a very cool device where like he's trying to write the epilogue to his book and be like, you start off like kind of so narrow in your thinking, but your your point of view expands when like when this like narrowing effect that happens with the perspective I feel like is more suggestive of that kind of gradual compromise um, Mm -hmm. that, that you're talking about. And he repeats this as kind of a device in the first page or first couple of page of most of the issues um, where like in number two, it's like a bullet that's flying at him. And then it's the O in under the hood. And then it's like a diner sign. And then it's the yolk of the egg that he's eating at the diner, talking to Larry Shexnader. (laughs) Um, a great name. We all love Larry. Number three opens with uh, like a circle of him. Like it's a, it's a, it's a cutout from like a comic, but he doesn't continue the motif with that at all or change the size of it or anything like that beyond that first panel. What he does with that device is sort of like he, he will insert those little circles and those circles are sort of like, again, sort of what we're talking about. It's like, that's like the rose colored glasses. Like, you know, obviously yeah, it's meant it's, to be it's a the comic, comic the book world. Yeah. Yeah. And it's sort of obviously contrasting that with the, the realness. Yeah. Um, number four, you see it as like the, uh, the film reel or the tape reel from uh, Silhouette's recordings there's like a swastika a sewer grate and then a setting sun on uh, mothman number five. Oh yeah number five is like the spiral staircase slash dragon tail that um dissolves into like the doomsday clock uh great that's a great issue that's probably my favorite issue from the uh this little run and then number six it starts off as like a record and doesn't repeat at that point. But then at the very end, we see the car the, like, or the engine. It, yeah. Well, it's like the the under the hood, like standee, the night owl, like flying Shit. machine thing. I can't remember the name of. Yeah. And then um, then it's the engine and then it's his face. But I was kind of I, I was sort of expecting that for that one, we would get the re-expansion because like, you know, to, to, to kind of bookend it, but those are all just sort of like different shapes. And so now instead I'm like, well, what's, what's up with all of these like circle images basically. And like the the expansion and contraction. The circle is a motif within Watchmen as well. Yeah. But it's, it's a motif within Watchmen with the like suggestion of a clock or like there's, there's always something on it to suggest like a watch face and in particular, like the five minutes to midnight, like doomsday clock, you know, sort of status. Whereas yeah. in these, I, there's a couple of them that do that, but for the most part, they are just like, un. It, it, they are primarily suggesting a circle and not necessarily a watch or a clock or, or anything beyond just sort of like the expanding or contracting circle. Yeah, I mean, I don't think that it necessarily is, like, trying to constantly be, like, if it's contracted, it rec- it means this. If it's expanding, mm-hmm. then it means that, like, I think it's just more of, like, a motif that harkens back to the original idea. Right. I, I just spent, like, a lot of time trying to figure that out. I spent a lot of time trying to figure out, like, when and why he chose to use the nine-panel grid. And, and those were two things that I felt like... I guess, I guess like you're saying, I could feel him sort of like nodding to Watchmen by including them. But then I was sort of like, but where's the, 
where's the where's the the whatever it is that kind of like gives this kind of a deeper underlying meaning that gives it the same sort of narrative or thematic oomph as so many of those recurring visuals in Watchmen do yeah I get what you mean I mean like I, I guess like it would be like that's what the first uh you know the first page is about like it's sort of setting that up mm-hmm. and I guess it just doesn't necessarily go deeper than that Yes. Sorry. <laughs> yes, I suppose. Dear reader, uh, and by dear reader, I mean dear listener, please, if you have any insights, correct us. We welcome it. Mm-hmm. But uh, but yeah, artistically, like, it's very strong, <laughs> I guess is what I'll say. He's doing a lot of cool stuff. I am at times sort of like, I wish there was a little bit more to it, or I wish I understood better why he was making some of the choices, but there's no denying that, like, the storytelling is very strong. The, the, you know, all, all the stuff we've always talked about with him, it's very dynamic. It's very emotive in terms of like character expressions and like the acting of the, the characters, things Mm -hmm. like that. Another thing that I noticed he was doing a lot of that I feel like is not very common for him is using like multiple panels to have it like show show one space and then like breaking it into panels to show kind of the action across that space but still having kind of like the complete picture when you look Mm -hmm. at all of the panels kind of in a whole he did he did a lot of that which i thought was interesting yeah there's i mean the one that stuck it stood out most to me is like the dr manhattan one where Mm -hmm. it is like a full page splash i think he does that at least one or two other times where it's just like a full page splash that is divided into the grid, which I think is an interesting. I think in the the dollar bill death scene, it's like three. Mm-hmm. Yeah, where yeah, it is it's really like just a full page splash. There's um a whole a whole sequence when he's doing. I think it's in issue two, where it's Night Owl, uh, Silhouette, and Mothman investigating the circus. And then there's like the the little rhyme showing the kid who like disappears at the circus. And then that's also intercut with scenes from Hooded Justice and Captain Metropolis. He does a lot of the cross cutting as well, I noticed. Like that's yeah. sort of I mean you almost have to you almost have to with like in those nine panel grid pages, but yeah, so those like there's a whole long stretch there where every row of three is like one kind of complete image split into three and then like the characters move around within the space from panel to panel but um like taking together the setting it's like a fixed camera angle i guess basically and you just watch them like walk across the the set as it were right definitely do we want to talk about the the plute yeah sure i mean it is kind of like not, I, I mean, I guess it's not exactly episodic, but because it's covering such like kind of a wide span of time, the running threads are like it, it doesn't necessarily have the same sort of like narrative drive of like Rorschach and Night Owl are trying to figure out who killed the comedian. Yeah, it doesn't really have well, like I guess like the framing device is the book, which yeah, is the, like the not- book and the like child porn ring are the two kind yes. of like through lines. Yeah, and I, you know, I think, like, both of those are, like, perfectly compelling stories in and of themselves, but, like, you're not really, like, I gotta find out what happens. Yeah, the, the like, while the book is so, like, kind of low stakes until the very end, 
that and and like so much not the focus that it's hard to be like i wonder what's going to happen with the book and then the like the the human trafficking slash child porn ring unfolds over so many years that it's like it's it's you the know conclusion it, it does going have to be that episodic like, feel yeah and i think like the the fact that it is like so drawn out is like you know that the conclusion of it is going to be more like dour than it is like a like moment and i guess it is i guess it is a moment as well mm-hmm. but you know there's yeah. there's more to it than just like a final battle certainly yeah. certainly but uh but yes i mean it it covers the whole like his his early forays into crime fighting as well as those of some of the other minutemen and then also like kind of chronicles the formation early days subsequent collapse and uh in many cases, deaths of the Minutemen or the things that drive them to retire in some cases, while also charting, like we said, this this story of him working with the silhouette and later kind of solo or with Mothman to break up this human trafficking ring. And this is all told through flashback as in the present, he has written a version of Under the Hood that is like a real confessional slash like tell-all which all of the remaining Minutemen and people close to them are taking real issue with uh, and and giving him a lot of resistance. Yes, a lot of guff. The one thing I wanted to bring up just because like I think it's interesting and you know I think there's probably certainly some significance to be taken from it is like how much, especially in this book, because I think it retcons some characters mm-hmm. or like adds it on to some characters, is like how many like immigrants, especially like European, Eastern European immigrants, like make mm-hmm. up the Minutemen and just like how that sort of like factors into it all, especially like the, the sort of idea of like wartime and post war America. I think mm-hmm. like it, it, there's some really interesting ground there. And something I was reading on Wikipedia as well is that the Dr. Manhattan series retcons him or, you know, or reveals him to be a half Jewish German immigrant. Hmm. And so like, and then I, you know, I don't know if Hollis Mason had already been established. He's what an Irish guy. I don't know if he's actually like, like fresh from Ireland, like born in Ireland, Irish guy, but, but a New York city Irishman. Uh, yeah, and, I don't think that had been, like, explicitly stated, but, like, it makes sense. Yeah, and then, like, obviously, Silhouette, Silk yep. Spectre. But I, I do think Silk Spectre is for sure, because, like, the whole name change thing is, like, yeah. a very a very big thing. Now that, like, you mention all the sort of, like, German stuff, that is suggested about um, Hooded Justice in the book as well. And I'm pretty sure Silhouette... I'm not sure if she's specifically Austrian, but I believe she is also like acknowledged. Polish, right? Is she? Sally's definitely Polish, but I, I believe I believe she was already kind of like existing uh, European of some yeah. some description. Yeah, yeah, and I just thought that was interesting, like sort of like because like we sort of talked about with the idea of hooded justice being black. I think like adds something to the character in terms of like. The idea of, like, the existence of a marginalized populace within Mm -hmm. America, especially at a time when, like, the world that was presented was so, like, homogenous and clean that there was this sort of, like, 
underside or like this whole population that was not being really acknowledged. And then that sort of like feeds into that, all the ideas in the book as well. I just thought that was interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, There's definitely like, I think the way, the ways that he uses hooded justice, hooded justice often looks like Batman ego, Batman. I find basically it's what I'm driving at. Like he, he imbues him with like a very Batman kind of energy, especially in the later issues when he is, thought by Hollis to be like villainous in some way or evil. Like he really plays up kind of like the scare factor uh, of him. Yeah. He is certainly the most threatening. Like, I mean, like even the comedian, like I guess maybe towards the end, he starts to be more portrayed in like how we see him in Watchmen where he is like yeah. a little more like threatening and like, well, we get, we get kind of like the full evolution where like, you know, he starts off in like the yellow suit yeah, and then they kick him out of Minutemen. And then the next time we see him, he's wearing sort of like, it's not like fully commandoized, but it is more. So it's, it's like almost like rocketeered, but it's also his like stealth costume. Like he, the suit is now black and the only real like nods to anything kind of comedian is that he has like these sort of jester like diamonds around the collar and he's still wearing the mask, but it is sort of a halfway to the, the sort of like commando military costume that he wears in like the Vietnam war era. Yeah. Which is cool. I really like the design of that like halfway costume because that is like a funny, like, like when we talk about there being meat on the bones for Minutemen, that is one of those things where it's like, what happens to him between being kicked out of the Minutemen and reemerging as like this super soldier, basically. And not that we get like so much information about that, but even just like taking the opportunity to be like, I'm going to give him a new costume. That's like not the new, new costume, but is like, you know, different from his original one and do, you know, some, some suggestion of story through like showing uh, by by taking a little bit of time to like visit him in that that kind of lost era yeah definitely and I, like yeah i i just <laughs> I, I like this comic a lot i will say like i i was very taken with it because i think like it's sort of it's almost doing for this era like it's it's sort of like the middle ground between new frontier and watchmen almost right where it's like it's doing for this era to some extent, like what Watchmen sort of did for its era, but then it has a bit, uh, but then obviously like that plays into new frontier because new frontier is also like not deconstructing in the same way, but I guess, Mm -hmm. yeah, to some extent is deconstructing like you were saying. Yeah. And then like sort of has that it has the darkness and the light is sort of like the, the place it is working in for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I do I do think that like it has taken yeah characters who are like barely in Watchmen and made them into memorable uh and interesting characters especially like I said I mean we've already kind of rattled them off but but Silhouette and Mothman in particular I think come out of this like so yeah. far ahead <laughs> um and it is like also kind of I mean I guess if there's um some sort of like cookie fingerprints on this. It's that he has found the characters where it's like, 
they have not already been like revealed to be completely garbage scumbags. <laughs> right. Uh, like the, what, what few characters there are who are superheroes in Watchmen where there's nothing like that you can point to and, and legitimately be like, they are a bad person. So he has like taken them and made them extremely heroic or, or taken someone yeah. who like in Mothman who, you know, his alcoholism and like self-medication is part of his story in Watchmen, but to be able to come in and be like, like basically like having a substance use issue doesn't mean that you can't be a hero or can't be brave or can't do good things. Basically like finding those characters who in the eighties might have been written off for these things and doing some like reconstruction in some ways to be like, these are not things that preclude you from being a hero. And like, I'm going to show you how people like this were heroic in spite of, or, or in some ways even more like, like Hollis kind of makes his case of like Byron was like the bravest one of us because he was like so scared and had to do so much to himself to kind of like allow himself to keep going. Right. Yeah. That's, I, I love what you said, like sort of like reconstructionist in some ways or like, yeah. Cause like it's framing it's, it is sort of like injecting the heroism back into the characters, but instead of like turning them into like, you know, comic book heroes, it's just turning them into like heroic people. And mm-hmm. like, I think, you know, one of the ideas of Watchmen is, like, the worst people are, like, the most successful, and then, like, all the good people are dead. And mm-hmm. then this is sort of, like, it's it's doing that same thing, but it's instead of them being dead, well, sometimes they're dead, but it's, it's, like, it's just, like, a good person can't escape unscathed from, like, this world that they're entering right. into. Yeah, like, they they end up getting killed as, like, part of their, their crusade, or they end up, like unable to kind of handle the strain or they end up like compromised and (laughs) laden with guilt. Yeah. Another thing that he has added, I think much more so in Minutemen, but it's certainly an element of Silk Spectre as well, is this extremely affectionate relationship between Hollis and Mm -hmm. Laurie, which is something I meant to, I didn't really have time to go and look, but I was kind of like, that's not really in Watchmen as far as I can recall. Mm, I'm not, yeah, because well, in Watchmen you more hear about like him and Dan is like more of the relationship, the mm-hmm. two night owls. Yeah, and like it and makes so- sense that like he would know her and be like Uncle Hollis, like that all tracks. But like to have him say like, "There's only one woman I've ever loved, and it was my niece, <laughs> like Lori Jupiter." That is like I think a new a new sort of wrinkle. Oh. I have something here. Um, <laughs> Lay it on me. The uh, in the the part in Watchmen when like the prison break when like Hollis gets like attacked by the gang or whatever. Mm-hmm. The drug that the gang has taken is KT twenty eight. Uh, okay. So, so anyways, I think a really good thing about <laughs> Minutemen is that it's not full of a bunch of stuff that's like <laughs> remember like in Watchmen. <laughs> well, that's the thing is like. I think it works better because it's like it is something that you would be more interested in hearing about. Like, you know, if it talks about like, you know, the comedian sexually assaulting six sweatshirt, you're like, uh-huh. not. I would like to, you know, you know. What I mean, but it's <laughs> I like, mean, we do see that in the comic, <laughs> sure. But it's like I would like to, like, it's like, how did they react? Like, who? Right. Like, were were people trying to defend him? Like, you it want just, to know just more like, about? I those think stories. it's. 
I think it benefits from like, there's just a weird approach to like the watchmen of it all in silk specter where even just like the fact that they never say the comedian's name, like when she has the phone call with Hollis, where she's basically says like, I'm going to call comedian if you won't do anything. She never says it. She's just like, if I've exhausted all my options with you, maybe I'll have to ask somebody else and him being like, Oh, Sally, no. (laughs) And then, and then like, even when he calls her back, her being like, I haven't heard anything from the other guy who we all know who we're, she's talking about. It's the freaking comedian. And like elevating him to this like same sort of place of like, I, I guess just putting like iconography onto these characters who are like iconic in their way but not iconic in like that kind of like batman or superman type of way where like the of the comic yeah in this like like the comedian is treated like alluded to in the same way that someone might be like i i'm calling in the the big guy in metropolis like yeah and, and treated with the same sort of like oh like the comedian is going to like handle this one i mean that um, is pretty scary it, it is it is like i mean it kind of works, but it just is like, I, I, I don't know. It, it dehumanizes him in like a weird way that I feel like the, the original Watchmen so many times goes out of its way to be like, yeah, he's like dangerous and he's scary and like capable of like a lot of violence, but like he is ultimately like a person in the same way as like all of these other people and like, you know, a complicated person who ultimately pretty bad guy, but he's not like this boogeyman. He's just like a guy, like a pretty messed up guy, which is like kind of what it's about for all of them. And so it's just funny to me that like this Minutemen is so very much in a lot of ways, like in that same spirit, but then like the impulse to treat like all of the characters in the same way that you would treat like mainstream superheroes he seems unable to resist in Silk Spectre. And maybe that's like a consequence of trying to portray it of like, well, it's like the perspective of a younger generation who like grew up, you know, hearing the stories and reading the, like reading under the hood and all that. Yeah. And I do think that, you know, maybe with the exception of like Dr. Manhattan, the comedian is the guy who is sort of like you, who would be like notorious in that way. Because like, I almost think like, you know, I guess the book you and I somewhere, and he is sort of seen as like a more just like overtly evil guy in this book. I will say, mm-hmm. like he doesn't really have many redeeming qualities uh, throughout any of this. Um, but yeah, but maybe it is just like the idea of like it's it's not even like the evilness of him; it's the elevation of him to like like a Batman esque figure, where it's like this guy like you don't understand like this isn't just some guy he's like the greatest warrior the earth has ever seen and like don't you understand sally like if you send the comedian in there he's gonna burn the city to the ground but i think it is less like this is the greatest warrior and more just like this is the most evil guy (laughs) this is the most unhinged psychopath (laughs) yeah yeah and like i think that that is more what it's about like he is like such an avatar of evil in the way that like he's like I think he is almost like this avatar of like manifest of like dark manifest destiny where he is just Mm -hmm. like, I'm so powerful. And you know, this is also what hooded justice is as well to some extent, but it's like, 
I'm so powerful, I can, like, take whatever I want, and so, like, I will have it, because, and also, like, I'm so disillusioned with, like, life and mm-hmm. the concept of, of like, goodness <laughs> that I will just, like, resign myself to being this, like, creature of ha- of appetites. <laughs> he is sort of, like, American Nightmare, where it's, like... yeah. He also, through, like, hard work and determination, like, made a name for himself and became the most successful person in his field, which was, of course, like, being a covert operative for, like, yeah, (laughs) like, being an extension of, like, American foreign policy, like, a war criminal assassin and, like, black ops guy. He was, like, the CEO of Vietnam, essentially. Mm -hmm. Well, famously, he had his big flamethrower. Yeah. He uh, like, he shot all those people with those rubber bullets. <laughs> we ever talked about the flamethrower? We can't talk the big about MF that. and flamethrower. <laughs> yeah, I believe there. I, I recently edited an episode in which I used the term big believe, MF and flamethrower, yes. but we did not discuss it further at all. I'll just just quickly here. <laughs> I was just reminded of it, and it's so funny that. Another sibling in the mm-hmm. uh, Got the Runs family, <laughs> our brother Steven, once raised the question while we were watching Infinity War, specifically the attack on Wakanda where they open up like one part of the shield wall to let the <laughs> all the aliens like run in. I believe the question was, why don't they just open it a crack so only one could fit through and then shoot a big MF and flamethrower into the gap? <laughs> or, or just, a big, just a big flamethrower. And then, and then he, the pitch was that Nick Fury would <laughs> <laughs> would say would call in for a big MF and flamethrower. <laughs> and just like uh. <laughs> oh, this is getting. This, this is not worth keeping it. But like the very like the like Stephen voice of like earnest exasperation. She's like, why don't they just get a flamethrower? <laughs> uh, yes, the the it has become a recurring gag to suggest that the solution to any given problem would be a big MF and flamethrower. Um, and certainly, the comedian seems to subscribe to that Truly. philosophy. I feel like I want to talk about issue five at some length, which is the yes. like nuclear incident. And yet, like, I don't really have anything to say about it other than like really good. Yeah, that's a really interesting one because it it's so self-contained in a way that the other ones aren't like the other ones seem to jump around a lot, but like do sort of feel like they're part of this ongoing story. Whereas this one does have like it presents such a specific instance that we never saw or heard about or anything mm-hmm. in the comic that I'm aware of. Maybe it was no. like very obliquely alluded to. Um, and yeah, just like, it's such a like sort of great self-contained story. Yeah. That it's, it is, cool. it is a great story. It is like leveraging the era so well. I feel like it is like, I don't want to say taking advantage of internment camps. Cause that <laughs> sounds wrong, but I feel like it was, it was using like, the historical reality of internment camps to like tell a compelling story in an era when like it was still not really something that was like discussed that much or thought about or talked about that much and also kind of like generally let alone as like the driving kind of story of something yeah and i think another big part of it is like it is also like hearkening or like digging into like the immigrant experience as well where Mm -hmm. like this is a Japanese person who is also an American and sort of feels the this like conflict and like 
you know, sort of almost mixed allegiances to some extent. And obviously, like, being Japanese specifically during a time when Japanese people were obviously not very popular in America, mm-hmm. to say the least. Yeah, that that, that just is, is an interesting element of it as well to me. Um, and yeah. It's not something that's ever, like, obliquely or, like, directly sort of, like, stated, but I just think it's interesting. I mean, like, obviously with Blue Coat and Robin, whatever his name is. Um, uh, Scout. Sure, Scout. Uh, it is a little more, bit more directly stated, I guess, but, you know, yeah. it never really talks. There are other times, but, you know, it doesn't really dig into it as directly as it does in this issue. Yeah, I do. I just think the panel, not not even the panel, I th- good, good writing uh, when he talks about, like, he's, like, watching this kid die of radiation poisoning and then says, looking back, I've realized this is why I've always had some kind of vague disdain for Dr. Manhattan. Some dope forgets his watch and becomes a god on Earth. Some poor kid saves New York City and he gets to suffer and die alone and forgotten. Very good. Also, like, just such a great panel when, or, like, really page as a whole when it shows him, like, going to close the thing the and, light shooting out of the crown. Yeah, the light shooting out and the narrative just being, it took the kids six seconds to pull the lid off that thing. Like, I, I almost feel like you can, he, it finishes, he'd be dead in as many days a couple panels later. I almost feel like if you just move the, it took the kids six seconds to pull the lid off that thing. It's like almost more like ominous and dark of being like six seconds is right. so short. And long, yet like in this context, it's like, so crazy that he was like exposed <laughs> for six seconds <laughs> right <laughs> just a great issue uh no notes yeah. really and also like i i think it's really it's such a great and like devastating choice that it's like he doesn't just die like he, yeah he like dies slowly and like unknown and like one of his like one of hollis's big like not it's not even guilt or regret like i don't think he regrets it but one of the things that like serves to further like jade him and embitter him is the fact that he has to lie to this kid and pretend like anyone knows what happened yeah i mean just all of it i think and it sort of gets back to also what i was sort of talking about that it's like your reward for like turning against you like your people and, and your, like doing, your literal family like your blood yeah. relatives and doing this heroic thing is like you get to have like horrific tumors and die mm-hmm. certainly a good comic um i will say like the it does i feel like kind of like pull its punches i mean i get it is like quite devastating at times but i mm-hmm. feel like like he darwin cook is not like as interested i think in the like sex and violence to the extent no definitely not yeah maybe the violence to a (laughs) to a certain degree but certainly not the sex like what like what did you think about like the scene where it's like intercutting between captain metropolis and sort of justice like their sort of like sex scene where Mm -hmm. they're they're sort of like bondagey scene (laughs) yes i was I was a little confused about the placement of it there until I got to the end, basically, or not, not the end, but until, until the like reveal that Hollis thought that hooded justice was the person behind the like whole trafficking ring. I was sort of like, why is this being placed here? It, it seemed like a little bit random to me, I guess. Well, sort of like, I guess like, 
if I were to posit a, a read on it, it would be sort of like the sort of like dual, like almost corruption of the innocent in the sense that mm-hmm. like Captain Metropolis is like probably uh, along with Hollis, I guess, is like the most unironic like representation of superheroism. And then he is sort of like becomes a victim of like the most brutal of them. Mm-hmm. And then you're sort of juxtaposing that with like a kid being made into a victim as well. Yeah, I thought like I I thought generally with the whole like kind of like hooded justice plot of it all, he was like walking a pretty fine line in terms of like villainization of gays and like conflation of gays and pedophiles and sure. suggestion of like I guess so. abusive trauma to a child. That means that he's going to then become a human trafficking <laughs> producer of child pornography. So, so all that stuff, like I just felt a little uncomfortable with all of that stuff and not in the way that I think was intended to uh, kind of feel and by the time it had it all resolved i was like i guess like they do it it does ultimately come out that like there's no reason to believe that hooded justice had anything to do with any of that stuff and like he may have just like enjoyed slightly rougher sexual encounters but so so i don't know maybe in fact he was just playing very effectively with uh with harmful tropes uh to manipulate my perception of things but yeah that's interesting that really isn't something that ever really occurred to me just because there are like multiple queer characters and mm-hmm. like i really like the depiction of the relationship between ursula and uh gretchen is it mm-hmm. yep yeah I think the conflation of like, I, I think I think in Watchmen, gay relationships are used in a way that is like, look at the seedy underbelly of these people. Right. Not necessarily like I don't think that necessarily Watchmen is like this is Being like, gay is but gross. Yeah, but I do like I think I think that there's an element of like he's playing with like the like 40s and 50s culture and perception yeah. of gay people at that time as much as anything and, or and or just, just the sort idea of, of like living a double life and like hiding and, yeah, yourself yeah exactly and i think like the injection of sexuality in such a like kind of like gross way regardless of orientation into like many of the superheroes in watchmen is all kind of part of the like deconstruction of it and being like don't forget like these people have like kinks and sex lives and like you know are are like not these like squeaky clean uh, heroic ideals who like wake up and eat a bowl of like shredded wheat and then fight crime all day. And then like Batman and Robin get into their like twin beds in the same room in matching pajamas and like wake up tomorrow to do the same thing again. Like there, there are, they are people, they have sexuality, they, et cetera, et cetera. That is like in some ways part of like the seediness of it all. But anyways, all that to say, I do though think that like, the fact that through the lens of like the sixties, there is an element of like, it's extra gross because they're gay means that like, I would, I would have wanted to like tread pretty carefully if I was the one writing it. And I do think like, like you said, I do think that like the relationship with uh, Ursula and Gretchen is like one of the stronger parts of the book. But I also think, yeah, I, I guess, like I said, the stuff with Hooded Justice, I feel like is like walking a pretty fine line. And I don't think that like I necessarily at the end of the day, I'm like, it was bad. It was harmful. 
But like I said, it made me uncomfortable and not, I think, in the way that it was intended to. I know what you mean. So the ending, are, we are meant to understand that Hood of Justice, that A, Rolf Mueller was a guy who was like this sex trafficker. Mm-hmm. Or at least like child predator. Sure. B, Rolf Mueller is not Hooded Justice. Yes. And then C, like, they like they just killed a guy who was Hooded, like, Hooded Justice is some guy who we never knew, and they killed him. Yes. Because so, they believed that he was Rolf Mueller. So or, or why, like, they believed that he was yes. the guy running the sex trafficking ring. So why does Hooded Justice try to kill them when they show up? When they he, show up at the tower? Yeah, because he, like, makes the first move. He They're like, come on out, Hooded Justice, we want to talk to you. Yeah. And then he is like, I'm going to drop a big crate on you and kill you. Which is, yeah. like, what confused me. Like, if he if he was innocent, surely he would have just been like, I'm innocent. Not like, I, I will kill yeah. you. I think that the whole thing of him is, like, he's always been, like, the most violent and the sure. most dangerous, other than maybe comedian. But, like, even even then, like, in his own, like, I guess expressed differently, where, like, you know, comedian is capable of being very violent, but is in some ways more predictable. Whereas, sure. like, Hooded Justice, like, you never know exactly what he's going to do. You never know if he's going to stop or when or where. So that's part of it. The fact that he is like at that point kind of like a fugitive, you know, having the people who like willingly unmasked and like signed pledges of allegiance and stuff show up having figured out where he lives and being like, come on out. Possibly he he sort of like just went straight into defense mode and was like, I'll die before they take me. Yeah. And I guess like he doesn't necessarily try and kill him. Like when they sort of finally encounter him, he is like, take Mothman and leave or I will kill both of you. And yeah. so I guess it is like he wants to be left alone and is like in hiding. But yeah, I feel like that isn't sort of like hammered home clearly enough. And I guess it's to make the twist more effective. But mm-hmm. I feel like I would have sort of made it a little more clear that like there was more to the story that we weren't getting. Yep, I did. I'm trying to find the specific page, but like not to get back to the Alan Moore of it all. <laughs> but... <laughs> I I just thought it was interesting. There's like a part I thought it was right after Silk uh, or um right after the silhouette died where he basically talks about or maybe it's when Dollar Bill dies, but he he basically talks about like oh yeah, maybe this is what I'm thinking of. So it's like the Dollar Bill death scene. He says the poor guy didn't stand a chance, killed by his cape and a revolving door. It was sad and to many pathetic and to many others it seemed darkly hilarious. Like all jokes, whether it was funny or not, depended on which end of the joke you stood. Then he basically says, like, I liked Dollar Bill, so excuse me if I don't laugh. No, there's another part I'm thinking of where he talks about, like, how basically, like, he has, like, watched everyone get, like, worn down and humiliated and turned into, like, laughing stocks. And so that made it, like, okay, basically, for, like, the world to turn their back on them. (laughs) And I was just sort of like, I mean, isn't that exactly, like... When people are like, Alan Moore, he's like a snake worshiping magician who's just like cranky about comics. Or it's just like, I don't know, I don't know. This is maybe like a bit of an overstatement compared to like what the what the characters in like Watchmen go through. But I do feel like there's an element of like the whole discourse 
in which like it's okay that Alan Moore is like screwed out of it because he's kind of weird and just like too grumpy about it anyways and he should get over himself. Sure. Any thoughts on that? I mean I <laughs> don't think care. I I think that Alan Moore is too grumpy to get over himself, certainly, but like well, I mean, that doesn't yeah. like preclude I I do I mean, it's I like just, what you I said do where feel it's like sort of he has become maybe more over time like I feel like he has like become more entrenched in his position and sort of like because he is in his position like he can't take that position unless Watchmen is a really like important and like masterful comic and so mm-hmm. he maybe like sells that more because that like is what supports his view of it I will say like we are mostly talking about stuff from him like right around the time this came out I would say in the past like five, even like possibly longer years, he has become a lot more so like not that his position has changed, but like he's not like on this like crusade to like convince anyone of anything about Watchmen. He's like long past the point where it's like, oh, a new Alan Moore interview. And he like just wants to talk about his like huge like prose novel that he wrote. And inevitably someone is like, so Watchmen, they really screwed you, huh? And he's basically just like, yep, they really screwed me. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, like, yeah, he's not going to be like, no, they were actually cool. Yeah. Uh, But then it like always gets turned into a headline and people are like, he should just get over it. Why is he still talking about this? And it's like, because every time he gives an interview, someone is like, so like, are you still pissed about Watchmen or what? And he's like, yeah, kind of. <laughs> but like, I feel like if people stopped asking him about it, you would like never hear from him about it again because he's so like long now in his position of like, if I had it my way, I would own the rights and these things wouldn't exist, but I don't and they do and I'm, I'll never work for DC again. And like, that's kind of that. And like, he doesn't really have anything more to say about it. Yeah. But, but like, he just kind of like keeps getting dragged back into it because he now has this reputation of like oh he's so cranky he's so crotchety he hates everything that like anyone does with Watchmen stuff which like he's more so at the point where it's like he would rather that they didn't but like I don't think he hates you know like I I feel like he just has gotten to the point where he's sort of like I don't have the energy to like hate anything about it anymore I I wish it was different I don't like that it is the way that it is but like I just, like, don't have the energy to, like, keep giving to this thing. <laughs> yeah, like, I don't think if you, like, gave him a copy of Before Watchmen Silk Spectre, he would... Well, maybe Silk Spectre, but <laughs> if you gave him Minutemen, I don't think he would, like, furiously, like, tear it into pieces or anything. No. And, you know, I feel like Minutemen is maybe, like, the one, you know, again, not having read the others, but I assume they're closer to Silk Spectre than they are to Minutemen. Mm-hmm. That is this, this kind of like the one that justifies ex- its existence. And it's like, I would rather this comic existed than not. And again, like that's sort of like coming from my stance of it doesn't really affect, like it obviously doesn't take anything away from Watchmen. If anything, it adds to Watchmen's legacy mm-hmm. to both A, because like it has this sort of like pursuant media that like legitimizes it by being like, We've got to do something with Watchmen because it's so cool and important. And also it's like, everyone hates this because it's no Watchmen. Mm-hmm. And so it, it it ultimately, like, Watchmen and Alan Moore come off looking better as a result of it existing in a weird way. Yeah, that's true. It is also funny because, like, there is a story that 
Scott Dunbeer told a lot, which was that like, because he was like the, the editor on the ABC stuff, he was kind of like the guy at DC who was still in touch with Moore, even like after he finished with all the DC stuff. And like, while he was doing like the ABC, all, all that stuff. So they would send him like comp copies of like all the new comics all the time. And <laughs> Moore basically was like, I don't like that ABC is a DC venture. I do not want these. Stop sending me DC comics. I don't care if they're free. I don't want them. And then when the first issue of New Frontier was like coming out, Dunbeer like called him and was like, I know you said no more DC comics, but like, I really think you're going to want to see this one. And he was like, okay, whatever, send it. And so he sent it. And then he like called back and was like, don't send me any more DC stuff, but you can send me this guy's stuff. (laughs) So, and I don't know, like, it feels a little apocryphal to me. I have yeah. to admit, no, I don't, I don't think Dunbeer is lying, but like, I don't know what Moore's like actual level of enthusiasm was for Cook's stuff, but it does seem like at least he wasn't like, this is trash. Throw it, yeah. throw it in the bin. Bollocks. Uh, faffing about, etc. Using it for tissue for me arse. <laughs> I'm wiping my fanny with it. <laughs> in oh, it. Come on. Um, (laughs) anything else to say about these comics watchmen now i think we've reached the stage of the podcast where we eulogize darwin cook uh well first we have to talk about sales (laughs) of course um i don't i don't want to spend a ton of time on this um have you have you read doomsday clock was my other question i no i have not um Jeff Johns, how to put this diplomatically. I'm not the biggest fan of Jeff Johns, and I don't think that he is the right writer to try and tackle something with the heft and legacy of Watchmen, is how I will put it. It's such a... I've, like, puzzled over this book constantly, like, trying to understand it, because, like... I've I've seen like it received acclaim when it came out. I've seen people online being like art was very celebrated. <laughs> there it has its fans. This is the thing is like it's easy to fall into an echo chamber with these kinds of like really controversial books where like if you're only clicking on the articles written by people who are like Alan Moore is right and like every Watchmen thing is heinous, then you're going to see a lot of negativity about all of this stuff if you are like I don't care what alan moore thinks i just want comics then you'll probably see plenty of like positive or like at least like somewhat positive reviews about it so yeah there's people who like it it does seem to me or my sense of it is so it was just like in a very weird spot yeah in terms of like it it was so they did rebirth this is this is actually good like Uh, background for the sales talk too so they did new 52 in which they were like we're relaunching the whole universe new continuity blah 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 all that stuff new 52 went on strong for about five years like doing well but then it was like getting pretty stagnant and people were sort of like we don't we want like classic superman back we want classic batman back we want like you know we want the the pre or the the like in the post infinite crisis characters back basically so they did rebirth which was like not it's technically still the like new 52 universe but then they were like but a bunch of stuff changed to make it almost exactly the same as the (laughs) 
post-crisis universe and right. we're sort of just like it's still new 52 but like it's back to normal but one of the big like things they did early in that was this crossover called the button and this was like one of the big like jeff johns led teases of like the first like the rebirth kind of like launch issue was like batman in the bat cave holding up the blood smeared smiley face button and being like what's this thing and then it's like not really clear exactly what was planned or what was supposed to happen but he had this crossover with with flash where they were like what's up with this button and there was this sort of like running mystery about like someone is like pulling the strings of the universe and it was like pretty heavily implied to be dr manhattan and then all the while it was like and like jeff johns and um gary um Gary Frank, that's right. Jeff Johns and Gary Frank are working on Doomsday Clock, and it's like going to be this Watchmen thing, but also like Superman's in it and Batman's in it. And it was like Dr. Manhattan is going to be revealed as like the guy behind it all, and they're going to like bring the Watchmen into the main DC universe. But then it like kept getting pushed back, and they had like these dangling narrative threads. So they eventually just like wrapped them all up and were like, it was something different. And like, I wasn't. F- this is this is like the kind of superhero stuff that I've like pretty well lost interest in generally yeah. at this point. So I wasn't following all this stuff super closely other than to know that like for a long time they were like really heavily suggesting that Dr. Manhattan was like the reason that Rebirth happened and he and other Watchmen characters were like soon to appear in the mainstream DC universe. And then they changed it. And then Doomsday Clock came out anyways and like Superman and Batman were in it but it was like so long delayed and there was supposed to be this like stuff of like, Oh, all these comics take place like a year after doomsday clock, but it just took so long to come out that it was ultimately like, then all this stuff happened, but none of it matters. Don't worry about it. So yeah. yeah, The the crazy thing about DC is just that like, they've done this like five times in the last 15 years that they have like, we're fully rebooting our entire universe and it's everything so is going crazy. to be different. like and also like but also like we will basically constantly have something running that is either coming out of a reboot or mm-hmm. moving into a different reboot like if you like trace the like direct line that's like infinite crisis to final crisis to flashpoint mm-hmm. to the button or like to to DC Rebirth to like whatever they're doing now which also seems crazy Mm -hmm. it's insane but then like I was like it is kind of a cool idea like I think he sort of talked about the idea of Doomsday Clock being like it's contrasting Dr. Manhattan and Superman because it's like Superman is the most human alien and Dr. Manhattan is the most alien human Mm -hmm. but then it's also like about a universe and like about like rebooting everything into like the new Omega Omega verse or whatever. Yeah. Have you been reading about like what they're doing now? How it's like all canon is true. No, other than like Grant Morrison has been doing that stuff forever. It's like so long past the point where most people are just sort of like as much or as little as canon as you want it to be. And like, it doesn't matter beyond that. Yeah, and also just one other question I had: uh-huh. Who is Joshua Williamson, 
and why does he not have a Wikipedia article but is credited for writing like every DC crossover event of the last like five years? Joshua Williamson is a comics writer for DC of like I would say middling kind of like marketability name recognition. Like he's written some here's the thing. I can't really speak to his quality because I've never read any of his runs because he's never written a run that either got enough buzz or was like conceptually interesting enough to convince me to buy it, which I guess speaks to my opinion of him, which is that like, I'm sure he has written plenty of comics that are perfectly fine and has plenty of fans, but I know he wrote like green arrow for a while. He wrote flash for a while. I wasn't really aware of him doing a ton of events but um it's but like yeah, he is a dc writer his, his like bibliography because he doesn't have a wikipedia article mm-hmm. uh, you're gonna want joshua williamson comic fine comic fine is the key one there um but but yeah it, the craziest thing to me about new 52 is that for their like longest running titles like action comics and detective comics were at what was the numbering here oh they didn't come out that month that's so stupid detective comics was at number 881 and when they did new 52 they were like back to one and these (laughs) these are titles that had never been renumbered before it was an unbroken numbering since 1938 or like for for action comics right and they were like we're going back to number one when we're so close to a thousand with never renumbering. And that is just the thing that's still like to this day, I'm just like, how do you talk yourself into taking like the highest numbered unbroken numbered, like comic series in like American history and be like, this is worth rebooting the numbering for like, I just can't, (laughs) I can't fathom it. It's so crazy to me. I know that like those high numbers are like part of the big, like barriers for entry for new readers, but it just is like, it's just like a historical statement to get that high and to decide to reboot when you're that close to a thousand, especially when they just end. Then we're like, when a thousand came up, they were like, we're renumbering to a thousand. <laughs> or like, <laughs> yeah, it was at like 997. They were like, oh, we're going back to legacy numbering. It's like, wow, shocker. <laughs> yeah. No particular reason. That That's just crazy to me. But anyways. This is what I wanted to particularly bring up about the Before Watchmen sales, which this drops like five months into the new 52 and also right in the middle of the Marvel summer event at that time, which was Avengers versus X-Men. And so you have possibly the single most cursed top 10 of all time for the month of June 2012, which is Avengers versus X-Men number six, Avengers versus X-Men number five, Batman number 10, Justice League number 10, Before Watchmen Minutemen number one, Before Watchmen Comedian number one, Before Watchmen Silk Spectre number one, Before Watchmen night owl number one spider men plural number one and avx versus number three (laughs) one of the most single most demented top tens i can possibly imagine um now that said the before watchman titles are doing absolute gangbusters um they all sell like quite close to each other for number one 
Minutemen is leading the pack with 107,517. Night Owl is bringing up the rear with 101,297. So these four titles alone uh, sell probably about 42,000 co- or 402,000 copies. So commercially, at least for this this first month, like it's undeniable. Like that's crazy, crazy numbers. They are certainly vindicated from like a marketplace standpoint sure. right off the bat. Now, by the time we get to the point that things are wrapping up, not that it's like so bad, but for example, uh, Silk Spectre number four just clears fifty thousand, placing at forty four on the charts. Uh, and Minutemen number six is at 44,027 for 43 on the month in January, 2013. So they pretty quickly, like they get that extremely buzzy first month, but by the time they've wrapped up as like mini series, limited mini series, they have dropped down to pretty like, (laughs) to, to quote your, or to paraphrase your review of Eternals, the most discoursed comics of 2012 are also the most normal um, at the end of the day. Which, again, I do feel like is just sort of like more being proven right of like saying Watchmen was special and they just want to turn it into another comic. By the time these are all wrapping up, the market clearly views them as like just another comic. But the financial success is undeniable. Like that first month alone carries it so far <laughs> with with just like so many units moved. I don't believe anyone won anything awards <laughs> wise for any of these. I would think which, uh, and and which like frankly, like I don't think that Darwin Cook didn't deserve it for sure. Minutemen. Yeah, like I, no, yeah, it looks great. I do think Minutemen is like an award worthy in some capacity project. Like it's very good. But it is also the kind of thing that, like, the Eisner, like, voting body well, <laughs> is not going to be, like, we must celebrate. Like, yeah, like, that is, that is like... It is before Watchmen. Yeah, like. it, it is populated, I would guess, primarily by people who are, like, it's disgusting that this exists. <laughs> I would almost go so far as to say, like... If it was just called Minutemen and it wasn't like a line of comics and it was just that, that it would be much more fondly looked upon at this point. Yeah, I would buy it. Um, Legacy wise, like I said, these are mostly forgotten. Minutemen is the one that gets brought up quite a bit as like, this one is worth reading. The other ones range from like fine to bad is, is sort of the like, at least the internet discourse legacy regardless of what people kind of think about the fact that they exist at all. Yeah. The, the people are just sort of like, it's, it's another comic. If you're really into Watchmen, it might be worth your time. If not like Minutemen is the only one that is really kind of noteworthy on its own merit. Yeah. I think both because like both because of the quality and also because like it's explore, it's the one that explores a story that we might be interested in hearing. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So that's that's uh, the Watchmen of it all, and the before Watchmen of it all. So true. And that is, um, well, like, what is like the last thing that he works on? I believe that the last thing that he works on, um, in terms of like, you know, not just like cover work or a one-off issue or things like that, is the Twilight it's, Children. It's. I think it's the Twilight Children. 
his big sort of like thing that he had been working on um, when he was diagnosed was going to be a creator owned book called Revengeance. And he had, which is like Metal Gear Rising. (laughs) I believe, uh, I believe more so inspired by like his Parker stuff and being like, I'm, and now I'm going to do like my own thing and keep keep on my, uh, on my crime beat. There is another project that I see him like mention a lot that I'm not sure if it was like the title of like the first arc of Revengeance or its own thing called Thunder Bay. Right. I've heard which about this. cool Thunder Bay, of course, uh, a Northern Ontario town, but I believe it was actually going to be like a um, Toronto Tor- set. Yes, book. It was. Yeah. It, I, I remember reading about this and I think it, they are the same thing. Okay. Yeah. And the big like thing with Revengeance is that he put it off for a long time because he wanted to get Tim Sale to do the art. Um, right. Another uh, rest in power, Tim Sale, who also died recently. Mm-hmm. Um, but they they were like good friends and collaborators, and he wanted him to do the art for it. But like his schedule basically just like never worked out. So after like several years, he was like, "I'm just gonna do it." And and Tim Sale presumably was like, "That's cool." Yeah. <laughs> So yeah, that's that's kind of like the big thing that was getting talked about is like keep an eye out for this, and of course, um, continued Parker stuff. Whether it was just going to be Butcher's Moon or if there was more kind of um, in the pipe for that, not really clear. But there was going to be more Parker, and he was working on Revengeance, um, and those were those were kind of the last two big things. His whole like. He he died very suddenly. Uh, he was he was diagnosed in December of 2015, and he died in uh, May of 2016. Yeah, so, I was reading that like basically like they made an announcement like because like he hadn't told anyone or like wasn't publicly mm-hmm. known, and then they like made an announcement on his website, and then he dies the next day. Yeah, um, Ed Brubaker in the like Parker the second Martini edition that just came out talks about like getting a text or an email from somebody to say it might have been from Darwin uh, some someone like got in touch with him to say like hey Darwin's like sick like really sick and he says like I had time to write him like one more email and he was dead within like 12 hours and like I don't even know if he read it wow <laughs> which terribly terribly sad yeah his his like as we kind of talked about in the first episode his legacy is like so towering for how like little he actually produced in terms of like volume and for how brief his career was relative to like many other legends of the field um because comics is an industry where people often start like even in their late teens um if if not like kind of into their 20s at the at the latest he came to it so late he was only really working for about well for 16 years and when you consider that the number of people and like the stature of the people who cite him as an influence, who hold him in like such high regard, who view him as a mentor is, is like kind of mind boggling. It does seem to have been something that he personally felt was like important to him to be like a, a champion of other creators and someone who gave people opportunities and gave people advice and, you know, lent his experience, lent his wisdom, just like his style. Like I really do think that he kind of repopularized a more cartoony style for for like kind of the the mass market which like you know when he was originally trying to get in that was like a knock against his artwork to say like you're too cartoony Amanda Connor has written about how like 
she used to really change her style because she was always getting told like it's too cartoony and sort of says like Darwin is the reason that I'm able to do like what is closer to kind of like my natural style because he repopularized it. Um, I think of like Michael Cho, who we've talked about, has like kind of made a career for himself in comics later in Darwin's life and then like after his death and has a very similar style that I think he would he would say he owes a, a big debt to uh, to cook stylistically. Um, I think of like Elsa Charretier would be another creator who I would cite as someone who is like, I think probably has gotten a lot of influence from Cook. And I'm sure I'm sure you could come up with a, a long list of many others. But as I said, like, it's pretty unusual. Usually when people talk about their artistic influences, they're pointing to like the same guys that Cook does who are, you know, active from like the 50s to like kind of the 80s at the latest. So for him to like have died in 2016 at a young age and have like a laundry list of creators working in 2022 who you can point to and say like and obviously their style was influenced by Darwin Cook is like kind of a crazy like how fast it was he was like stylistically embraced or or at least like opened the door for that kind of style to be like popularly accepted and more commercially viable yeah and I mean like I think that there's a lot of that in like I think that the advent of all ages comics like owes a certain amount to him as well, both like stylistically. And then also like, I know he was like working on the Marvel adventures. I think I mm-hmm. tried to talk about this before and said it wrong, but uh, <laughs> that like he, they like wanted him to work on this, like all ages line. And then they sort of like took it on without him, but that like he had did also have this influence on, the Marvel adventures line as well, mm-hmm. which is like a funny thing for someone who, you know, I certainly would not call most of his comics are very much not like all ages, but you can yeah. see in his style how like that would sort of come to pass as well. Like, certainly it's sort of like what I talked about at one point with the, the Harley Quinn or when, when did I talk about mm-hmm. this? That like, it felt like, the the comics I would be reading in like a kid's magazine. Right. Yeah. 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 It is like, I, I have been struck many times, like kind of as we've been going through his stuff to think about, like, it is funny how much he has the reputation as the heroes should be heroes guy as like an all ages kind of type guy as like the retro guy or the cartoony guy when so much of his work does not reflect that. <laughs> like his like, like he, second most he's always been, work is yeah. He's is, just always been very drawn to more adult themes, and even his big like this is like the the like ode to heroes being heroes book. As we said, involves like a harrowing sequence that ends with Hal Jordan shooting someone in the head. <laughs> a Korean, yes. <laughs> So, so yeah, I mean, we've, we've certainly gushed about him, uh, at length over the course of these episodes. I do think that he will continue to have a legacy for many years because a of just like his influence and B the, the creators who were impacted by him seem so committed to like keeping his, his memory alive and keeping his legacy alive. And, and the fact that, like, New Frontier achieved this, like, classic status so quickly, I don't think he is someone whose um, impact is going to stop being felt anytime soon. And it would not surprise me at all 
20 or 30 years from now if people are still saying like like if he's the cool like name to be like and of course like darwin cook you know huge influence on me when i was learning to draw etc cetera, etc cetera. i do think he is going to have that kind of staying power and that his his influence will if anything just continue to grow yeah and i think that we haven't really ever talked about this but he was a point guard and shooting guard for the New Jersey Nets, Washington Bullets, and San Antonio Spurs. You are Nuggets thinking, of well? course, of Darwin Cook with an I. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> yes, who could forget his uh, 9.5 points per game, 2.1 rebounds, and 3.7 assists? Please, 2.1 steals. I Wait, think no, that's incorrect. 1.7 steals. 1.7 steals, not bad. Yep. Yeah, 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 yeah. He seemed to be a bit of a, a spot starter. I'm seeing here that his nickname was Sparkplug. Uh, so he himself ha- also has something of a legacy uh, to this day. But, um, <laughs> uh, yeah, it, I mean, what's... I, I mean, I don't know why. I'm usually not someone who, like, gets super, like, sad about celebrities dying. But, like, for some reason, I mean, I guess it is just, like, going through his work, like, it made me really sad to just be, like, we're not getting anything else from him. Mm-hmm. It It is, like, it was so sudden, it was so premature, and, like, yeah, I do think, like, the things that get to me are just thinking about, like, how much work he still yeah. had ahead of him and, like, how much more he still wanted to do and would have done. And especially in light of like, I think we mentioned this and I don't think that he would say that like he regrets this or anything, but the fact that as we've said, the last several have been like very much adaptations or like homage type things working within someone else's legacy. Yeah. I mean, there is no, there is no creator owned original Darwin Cook book. There just isn't. Yeah. Which which is crazy and is something that he wanted to do and like no no like yeah no original graphic novels no like none of these things that he is on the record as saying like I would love to do this I would love to like you know have those kind of crossover um, things that like like Scott Pilgrim or like Chester Brown type stuff that brings more people into comics like he he was someone who was like excited about comics as a medium who wanted to see more people like reading comics and who wanted to make comics for people to like get excited about comics and um and he certainly did but you know just knowing that that there was more that he wanted to do that uh, that he is not going to have the opportunity it is certainly certainly sad yeah oh <sighs> well <laughs> I think uh, I think there's nothing to it at this point, but to uh, rank them. Yeah, rank them, bank them. I will have to uh, make a quick note here because I forgot to uh, do this. Mm-hmm. All right, I am prepared. Okay, Again. I think I am as well. I have at number eleven, Silk Spectre. That is Shocker. mine as well. At number ten. Batman the Spirit. That is mine as well. At number nine, Selena's Big Score. That is not mine. At number eight, The Spirit Ongoing. Mm-hmm. At number seven, Richard Stark's Parker the Hunter. Mm-hmm. At number six, Batman Ego. Mm-hmm. 
you go. At number five, <laughs> Richard Stark's Parker, The Outfit. Mm-hmm. At number four, Before Watchmen, colon, Minutemen. Mm-hmm. At number three, Slayground. Uh-huh. At number two, DC, colon, The New Frontier. Ooh. And at number one, Richard Stark's Parker, The Score. Wow, I love it. And ours are like weirdly, extremely similar, but flipping <laughs> like a couple of related. I'll, so I'll tell you mine. Uh, number 11 is Silk Spectre. Number 10 is Batman the Spirit. Number 9 is Batman Ego. Number 8 is The Spirit Ongoing. Number 7 is Parker the Hunter. Number 6 is Catwoman Selena's Big Score. So we have those flip flopped. <laughs> yep. Number 5 is Parker's Slayground. Number four is Minutemen. Number three is The Outfit. Number Hey-o. two is The Score. And number one is The New Frontier. So, like, we are, like, That weirdly, is, like, weirdly like, similar, but, like, yeah, different opinions. About, yeah. I, I just, like, I like Selena's Big Squirrel. I would say I really like everything on this list except Silk Spectre, about which I'm kind of, like, take it or leave it. I'll probably never read it again. Sure. I will read probably everything else on the list again at some point um, and have read almost all of it before. I, my main thing with Selena's big score is that I just like having now read all the Parker stuff since then, I'm just like, it is just like so Parker fan fiction in some ways that I'm like, can I possibly rank it above any of the Parkers? And the conclusion I came to was no. (laughs) Sure. I think that's fair. And I would be interested to see how I would take it coming back to it. Um, but yeah, it's it's like literally like Ed Brubaker talks all the time about how every time he would put out something like like Sleeper or Incognito, these books that are like crime elements, but like they're still superheroes. Cook would like write him an email and be like, you've got gold here. Get rid of the superhero crap and you'll really have something. <laughs> and like that is so much I feel like Selena's big score where I'm like, man, you cut out the superhero stuff and like you're really it's like a something rocket with this. train. Yeah, yeah, there sure is cool yeah pretty cool like i said it's all good stuff i i don't complain absolutely i will also say as kind of like i guess a last note on him there's a really cool book that came out fairly close to uh the end of his life that is from like a dc series that they do called graphic ink where they showcase like kind of just like work from across the career of different like notable artists who who have prominent kind of dc oriented careers so there's a darwin cook volume of graphic ink where they collect a lot of the stuff that we didn't talk about and some of the stuff that we did uh, including like the dc new talent showcase story um i think selena's big score is in there as well and and a bunch of kind of like random issues from all across his career and there's also a really long interview with him in it that we didn't really talk about at all but is is a very interesting read so if you're looking for like an avenue to read some of that stuff that is like less well known or hard to find or like just get kind of like a sampler assuming that you're not looking to get (laughs) any kind of cohesive story but it is a cool kind of like overview of his career and while it's sad that it came out so close to the end of his life it does ultimately as a result end up being kind of like a full career retrospective for him because it really does have stuff from kind of like every season of his career yeah yeah well i suppose that shall close the book on darwin cook as the famous saying goes, uh-huh. um, which does mean as much as I hate to uh, 
leave him behind, we are heading into a new uh, a, a a break episode, a palate cleanser mm-hmm. as we call them on mm-hmm. Bevy of Bevies, uh, <laughs> and into a new mini series. <laughs> do you, like do my, you do series on Bevy of Bevies? We do seasons. We're in the summer oh, season right now. Of course. Well, yeah. So aren't we all? <laughs> So true, King. Um, uh, so I forget how we've done it in the past. Uh, do we? Are we going to announce? Yeah, we can announce the it new right mini now. series because next yeah. week we will be doing like an at the start an of, annual. Yes, an Airsots mini series is my understanding. Do you want to take yeah, the wheel and explain what this is exactly? Sure. So these are. This is something that I have kind of had in mind as something that we might do between mini series before, which is to cover some books that it's not really likely that we would ever talk about the creator or they might just be like less well known. So we have done, of course, these little annuals in the past before with uh, Jughead's Time Police, uh, which was just something that we thought was fun and funny. And the Gumby stuff being a kind of loose connection to the Scott McCloud miniseries. This doesn't have any bearing on on cook or anything like that it was just books that i knew we would never talk about otherwise and i thought it would be fun to just kind of as a break episode do little book clubs on them so we are going to be uh talking next week uh about the first volume of the hobtown mystery stories series by chris burton and alexander forbes which is the case of the missing men and then we will be launching into a new mini series on Critical Darling, youngest Eisner winner uh, in history, Tilly Walden. Uh, we will be doing a short mini series on her, and then we will be returning to Burton and Forbes to do the second volume of the Hobtown Mystery Stories, which is The Cursed Hermit. <laughs> which the Kermit. Consider myself something of a <laughs> consider myself something of a cursed hermit. So sure. those are those are um, some good CanCon books that. Uh, I'm looking forward to talking about with you, rereading. Uh, They pitch these as uh, Nancy Drew meets David Lynch, which I now feel is like a little bit played, um, but at the time was quite fresh. And I will say, I think like lives up to it in a way that does not always happen with media that markets itself as Nancy Drew meets David Lynch. Yeah. Well, just like in particular, they're like, like, what if, what if like this young adult thing was done by someone who's totally twisted and and like a real weirdo. So I'm looking forward to talking about those. They will be not really so much career talk as much as just kind of book clubby episodes. I'm sure they'll be a little bit shorter as is befitting palate cleansers, but um yeah, I, I am eager to talk about that. And then we will dive into Walden, who is someone that I think you are really going to like these books, is I my is my early prediction. Bet you are correct in that regard. So we will look forward to that. Until then, thank you everyone for listening. You know, just spread the word. That's what I'm gonna say. Because <laughs> I feel like, you know, we have a small but dedicated listener base. Uh, and shout we, out to the lucky 10 <laughs> shout out to the lucky 10 who, ha- who have persisted i will say so absolutely shout out to them but i would love more people to listen to this i think we're frankly i think we're doing a good job um <laughs> hopefully if you are in the lucky 10 you agree and so i would really appreciate personally if you would share with a friend send them an episode that you think they might like um you know 
we talked to Scott McCloud. Surely that that's... is a crazy thing that I think about all the time. <laughs> that makes us seem so much more legit than we actually are. Yeah. Thank you, Scott, who I think still listens, which I... also is crazy to me. Um, once again, thanks for doing that. That was super cool. <laughs> I mean, never truly like undying love and respect. Um, yep. But yeah, so share with a friend, of course, rate, review, subscribe as per usual. We beg of you. Yep. Follow us on Twitter at GotTheRunsPod. Uh, send us an email blast at GotTheRunsPod at gmail.com. Listen to Bevy of Bevies, as I previously alluded to. Uh, there's a terrific, I will say, episode that maybe is out or maybe is coming out about uh, Sophia Rosé. The I guess by now it will pr- almost certainly be out. But the uh, Francis Ford Coppola winery product. Sophia Rose. Uh, it's a very fun episode. A wrench gets involved. That'll be my teaser. So listen to Bevy of Bevies. Listen to High Floor, Low Ceiling. Uh, and of course, you can follow me at C House and Jan on Twitter. Uh, anything else, David? Um, nope. Just trying to remember the password to the email account to see if we've gotten any mail. <laughs> Great. Well, you keep working on that. But until you do that, and until next time. To be <laughs> what happened? I was uh, reading this freaking Google stuff. Let's take that again. <laughs> Keep that in. Uh, and until the next time we attempt this, to be continued. No emails. <laughs> Spotify for artist and curator is waiting for you. We have scouted you for our playlist. <laughs>